Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Prime Time, bitch, where we discuss movies of the big dumb variety. Bitch, I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today by two wonderful film critics. First up is the D double O D, the Alabama log jamma review to Josh. I prefer the wizard master because on this pod, I'm beautiful and bad. You can't have both, you fucking son of a bitch. <laughs> you get to be beautiful and bad and the wizard master. Watch me. And also joining us for the very first time, he is the genre man with a plan. He's Mr. Horror to you. Jerry from The Offering with Jerry Horror. Hey, what's poppin'? I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me to this uh, little soiree. Absolutely, man. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Josh, for coming back. It's well past October, fellas. Yet, here we are, continuing our spooky season movie reviews. And we're even staying on topic this time, because today we are here to discuss... A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Now, this is a movie that I consider to be possibly the high points of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. It peaked early, in my opinion. I mean, there's some other good stuff that follows. You know, I've talked about this a lot. I'm a new Nightmare fan. But let's talk about the other side of that coin real quick. Jerry, A Nightmare on Elm Street. There's been a ton of Nightmare on Elm Street media. I just want to know, in your opinion, what would you consider to be like the low points of the Elm Street franchise? Okay, so it's 1988, and they're just about to drop A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, and they decide to do another music video tie-in because the Dokken Dream Warriors soundtrack is the song has been such a hit uh, it was the first music video that was ever on a VHS tape, the Dawkins song. And uh, the horrible low point that's also kind of amazing all at the same time, like it, it, it comes around. They decide to do a music video tie-in with the Fat Boys called Are You Ready for Freddy? But not only do we go far enough just to get the Fat Boys on the song, somebody's brilliant idea was like, let's get Robert Englund to rap on this track. Oh my god. It's a dream come true. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's amazing. Like it's it's a perfect like time capsule. Like there was never Jason Voorhees never rapped. Michael Myers never rapped. You know, Chucky, to my knowledge, did not do a, a rap single, but Freddy Krueger did. And it perfectly encapsulates 1988 and like crystallizes it like the mosquito in Jurassic Park. And it puts a timestamp on it, but it's it's just to me, like, even as a little kid, I was like, I love Freddy, but I'm like, ooh, they went too far. <laughs> <laughs> Freddy jumped the shark. <laughs> as a child, I'm like, this is in poor taste. See, I haven't heard that. I think I've heard of that. I think I remember you mentioning this on your podcast when Freddy ruled the world. But I, I'm going to assume here that the first lyric is, my name is Freddy. Because every shitty rap song... Like that's, you know, some character that's going to bust out. Like a Urkel's going to rap. 
whatever whatever dumb TV character or movie character. It's always my name is blah, and then oftentimes followed by and I'm here to say. You nailed it. That's ex- exactly what he fucking says. Stay ready, cause you know who's back. Freddy. You see, my name is Freddy, and I'm here to say, I'll wrap you up and take you away. Feel like you're tired and ready for bed. Don't fall asleep or you'll wake up dead. Like Jerry Horror here, I am also going to echo him and say Freddy's short-lived rap career <laughs> is the lowest point in the in the Elm Street series. Uh, I will say Freddy's probably better than Leprechaun, but on like they make Joe Pesci's rap album look good in comparison, but like it's just awful schlock. Wait a minute. Did they just say Joe Pesci's rap album? Oh, yeah. You don't know about this? No, I've never heard about this. <laughs> oh, you haven't lived. Hey, hey, beat out my ass. Treat all my bras like trash. You'll catch a blast if you move too fast. I talk with class. You don't have to ask. Getting everything by flashing cash. Fighting and stealing. Don't kill without feeling. So I went in casinos before they start dealing. All about respect and intellect. Only mess with the women that pick up the check. Supermodels, one on each arm One chick's brunette, the other was blonde I heard their fathers had stocks and bonds So I fucked them up and left them floating in a pond It's crazy because, like, I feel in the year of our Lord 2022 They would never allow this to happen Like, Art the Clown is not cutting a song with, you know what I'm saying? Like, Lil Durk or whatever, it's just not happening You're not getting the the sick beats of Duke or whatever? <laughs> I was gonna say Jigsaw, man Oh, Actually, yeah, yeah, that, that, would actually, <laughs> that might work, actually. <laughs> I want to say a quick thing, and, you know, I knew about Freddy when I was a kid before I had ever seen a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. He was very much in the public consciousness, and there was an NES game when I was a kid, a Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. Have you guys seen or heard of this game? Oh, I've played it. <laughs> okay. That's right. This is an 80s man I'm talking to. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit older. I, I played it, and uh, I can tell you it's certified rotten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is one of those games. Like, NES just used to, like, just release so many games. I shouldn't actually say NES used to release them, because there were always third-party companies that were making games. You know, LJN is very famous for making a lot of the worst games that have ever existed on that particular console. This is one of them, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's an LJN game. Okay, good. Good. I mean, I didn't check, but I would just assume, just based on the gameplay. This is one of those games that is, like, very, very loosely related to the movie that it's based on. Because you're just a, a, a sprite, right? You're a little character sprite, and you're running along, and you're, like, punching vampires and bats and pumpkins and you know just spooky stuff and then at the end the boss they probably just like redecorated it to look like freddy krueger vaguely it was probably something else originally like a fucking mummy that's just the way it worked back then i want to play the game from freddy's dead that freddy has breck and meyer trapped inside of with the the towel and he's like whipping him with his dad yeah. That's the game that you like like you wish you got, right? You know? Oh. Yeah, because it's got great graphics. 
Yeah, they, at that point, they were at the 11th hour of Freddy's career. They were just trying to... Anything relevant, like, oh, what are kids like? Kids like Nintendo. All right, we're we'll gonna throw that in the movie. Hip-hop and Nintendo. <laughs> I'm surprised there wasn't a fucking pogo ball. <laughs> but you know what? Freddy Krueger is an icon. And a Nightmare on Elm Street series is iconic. And it's, it's timeless in that I think it will go on forever. I have a feeling that this franchise will be rebooted indefinitely. Like, we will always be seeing Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and everyone will remember the great run that Robert England had. And it all started with the very first movie, A Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, when I was a kid, we just thought they were called Freddy Krueger. You know, Freddy Krueger 1, Freddy Krueger 2, but of course, no, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I want to get the audience kind of caught up story-wise so that we can get to this movie, number three, because the only other Freddy Krueger featuring movie we've done on this podcast is Freddy vs. Jason. And that was the last podcast we did, actually. So, Jerry, could you do us a favor? Could you catch us up and recap the synopsis, the story of A Nightmare on Elm Street? Oh, well, I, I, I am more than willing to oblige you on that. And now, of course... For your listeners, let me catch you up. Uh, this is some of my infamous table setting. At this point, New Line Cinema, who the house that Freddy built, really hadn't had a lot going on. They distributed various movies. Their biggest successes were like the Sonny Chiba films, the Street Fighter films, John Waters films like uh, Pink Flamingos, Polyester. Uh, in 1982, the closest they came with a homegrown film was Alone in the Dark, which was directed by Jack Shoulder, who would later go on to direct The Nightmare 2. This was like the first movie where they're like, all right, we're, we've got a legitimate shot at making a creepy horror film that'll make some money. And uh, that was really what it was about. Also at this time, due to contractual obligations and a pretty messy divorce, uh, Wes Craven had to... It's like... The highest highs and the lowest lows, the same year that he makes Elm Street, he also has to make, um, a, <laughs> by obligation, one of the worst sequels of all time, The Hills Have Eyes Part 2, which, if you've never seen it, there is a sequence where even a, a dog that's in the film, the dog has a flashback. And <laughs> what the fuck? What do, what do dogs have flashbacks about? The bones they buried? It, it's just the craziest shit because they're like in a bus or whatever and they're panning from character to character and like they're going through their trauma and then we pan to this golden retriever and he's like, oh yeah, this is what I saw. It's like, it was really fucked up. <laughs> That's epic. Yeah, it, it's, it's incredibly terrible but also amazing at the time. <laughs> Honestly, that kind of sells me on the movie. Wait, I'm going to be right. honest with you. We've got to see it now. There's there's a lot of things. There's this villain. I think his name's Jupiter. He, he basically he's this giant guy who's this you know mutated wasteland guy, and they they didn't have a motorcycle big enough for him. So he's like riding this like it looks like a tiny little child's motorcycle, and you're like, this is supposed to be the big bad guy in the movie, and he already looks like a chump. Um, it's terrible. I mean, it, it's terrible. Like. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. Like, he rolls up and everyone just makes fun of him. Like, get the fuck out of here, dude. What are you doing? I'm sold. Like, yeah, you're, you're going to rape, murder, and eat us? Like, come on. He just, like, does a U-turn. Yeah, exactly. So, we've got Elm Street. This movie was made for $1.1 $1. $1 million. 
like globally this thing made way over 60 million dollars that's not even the vhs they couldn't keep the vhs in stock it, it was like the first real big hit that media had and media had been putting out horror films and you know trash cinema and stuff but this was like for new line for media home video this was a big one this was like what like game changing for them so just giving you a real quick plot recount i'm like uh, recap excuse me got all this election stuff on the brain it's like recounts uh so stop the count <laughs> we've had enough damn counts and recounts <laughs> So essentially what happens in this film, we, and everything, like, the crazy thing about Wes Craven is that he's clearly working shit out through his films. And you will see, like, the themes that you see in this movie, like in the beginning of this movie, we're dealing with Tina. And we think that Tina is going to be our protagonist. And ultimately she gets killed off. Not as quickly as Drew Barrymore... But you see what I'm saying. It's it's Wes Craven's working through these things in some kind of subconscious level uh, throughout the rest of his career. And then, you know, like, I think Scream is, like, where he gets it. It's, like, pitch perfect because there's nothing left scary to do except kind of parody yourself. Which was really perfect for that time as well. Yeah. Like, that was the right moment to indulge that kind of, like, filmmaking. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. And you've got... You've got Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, this, I feel like this is like your dr- this is like I'm like your drunk uncle trying to like recap this film. So Tina is haunted by the dreams of this man. Well, I guess they're nightmares eh, technically. Uh, she's haunted by these nightmares. We see these nightmares. She's hanging out with this guy Rod. She has a friend named Nancy, and her neighbor is Johnny Depp. I don't even care what his name is. He's just Johnny Depp. This was like his first big feature, and the way that he got cast in this film was um, Wes Craven was showing his daughters. He's like, all right, these are some of the hunky boys we're trying to cast in this part. And they had like huge girl boners. I, I don't even know if that's a thing, but they had huge girl boners like, this is the guy, Dad. It wasn't back then, but it is now. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, so they cast Johnny Depp. They're all haunted by these nightmares. Tina's boyfriend, Rod, doesn't really want to admit to it. Tina is murdered, and then Rod is accused of killing her. Rod is then put in the police department. He gets killed by Freddy in his sleep. Freddy's real. And and here's what's crazy. Can I I just... I'm sorry to go off on a tangent, but this is going to make things a little bit more interesting. The reason this movie fundamentally works, okay, it's got a low body count. Like, four people, if you include Nancy's mother, actually get killed in this movie. So, like, this is much later. Like, the slasher boom is, like, 81, 82, where you've got all the copycat movies, like Final Exam and shit. So, it, it just, it works, because in this moment in time, it's like the slasher craze is kind of dead. That same year, you've got, you know, Friday the 13th, Part 4, uh, the final chapter. So, they're trying to bring that to a close. And, like, Craven just subverts the entire genre uh, whether you want to consider it surrealism, a slasher film, a horror film, and it works on so many different levels. But what I realized by rewatching this movie the other night was we go in this movie, we see like Rod, Tina's boyfriend, gets killed by Freddy in the police station. And they think he hung himself. So there's always kind of like these weird, creepy ways that Freddy kills you. And if he kills you in the dream, 
you know, you die in real life. So I was saying to myself, I'm like, we're at Rod's funeral. Like, I've watched a lot of, lot of slasher films, probably too many. And I don't remember many or any at all where you, you actually see the repercussion of this. Like, you're at a fucking funeral. Like, this isn't just like, oh, you know, like some drunk girl, she shows her boobs and gets her head cut off. There's like real world repercussions for what's happening in this film, you know? And, and that, I think, goes a long way to sell this film. Nancy finds out that her mother and a bunch of other uh, people who were drunk and or under the influence, it was the 80s, so crack. Yeah. <laughs> crack cocaine. Uh, or as white people like to call it, freebasing. So they, <laughs> they decide that they're going to kill this janitor who's diddling kids. Do not diddle kids. It's no good diddling kids. He was, you know, he's a child murderer. And that's the other thing. Like, we have to remember the whole Freddy Krueger before this whole thing goes off the fucking rails by you get to part four. He's still a child murderer, and that's absolutely terrifying. So he's found a way to come back from beyond the grave into their dreams. He kills Nancy's boyfriend, and then she uses, like, kid logic, which is a way to, like, stop him and pull him out of the dream. Um, her father is a cop. I feel like this is the most roundabout way of fucking describing this movie. And... <laughs> Uh, played by John Saxon, you know, everybody loves John Saxon, who, who will come back in three, so stay tuned, viewers. Yeah, ultimately, she beats him to a draw, and Robert Shea was like, oh, we need a hook for a sequel. So they, they shot this other ending without telling Wes Craven, and they went to the premiere, and he didn't know that that ending was on there, and he flipped shit and then like didn't talk to Bob Shea for like I want to say at least three years that's the one where someone gets like sucked through the uh the little window on a door right yeah and it's it's a terrible it's like an inflatable doll that you'd buy at a sex shop <laughs> I kind of love it though like that. <laughs> it's it, it it's gnarly man it's this is a pre-cgi world and everything is lovingly done with detail by a real human being, and, and there's something right. there's something very charming about that. How did what's the way that they defeat Freddy in that first movie? Because I want to touch on that for each one leading up to this movie. Do you remember? Yes. Well, here's the thing: if you want to make a good movie, especially a good genre movie or a good horror movie that's supernatural, you have to have rules, and that is what Craven did so deftly in this movie and also in the third film. We'll get there, folks. Don't worry. He, he has rules. And the rule for the Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, is if you can pull Freddy um, from out of the dream world into the real world, then you, then you can defeat him or at least beat him to a draw. Yes, and that's what they bring back in Freddy versus Jason. Of course, very famously to level the playing field, so to speak, with the two of them. Uh, I kind of want to add onto something you were talking about with A Nightmare on Elm Street and what makes it rise above some other slasher movies is that it has a good premise mm. and it has a scary and interesting premise where this guy comes at you in your sleep. He is not a material being. He exists in the dream world exclusively and you have to go to sleep eventually. Yeah. And I don't know about you guys, but as a podcaster, as a guy that works and makes content, 
I am constantly at war with sleep. <laughs> right. Sleep is my fucking enemy. I'm always staying up too late, trying to get some project finished. And uh, the idea of, you know, not having enough sleep and still trying to function is hard enough. But when you got to deal with this fucking demon man coming after you, that's pretty fucking sweet. It's an inevitability that everyone can relate to because it's a biological function. You don't have to go out to Camp Crystal Lake and get murdered by Jason. You don't have to go out into the ocean and get killed by Jaws. In this, everyone is at risk and possibly anyone and everyone can get killed by Freddy Krueger if they fall asleep. And that is absolutely terrifying. And to add to that, like he... You're stuck in a dream. He can manipulate. He manipulates and cheats all the time. Yep. Yeah, and he's a real fucking prick about it too. Yeah, right. Faster than a bastard maniac. Told ya, comic books was bad for ya. That is a nightmare on Elm Street. Josh, of course, there had to be a sequel as popular as that movie was, as Jerry so kindly described. That's where we get a nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Josh, can you recap this movie and tell us if Freddy does in fact get his revenge? <laughs> Spoilers, no. <laughs> ah, no revenge? Freddy's Revenge, directed by Jack Shoulder, who Bob Shea dug up, you know, in the, in the basement at New Line. <laughs> Written by David Chaskin, who they found living in the dumpster out back of New Line. <laughs> get that guy. He'll work for food. That guy, he's going to write the new Freddy script. So we're introduced to a new protagonist by the name of Jesse, a new kid to Springwood, who has the luxury of living in Nancy's old house from the first film because Bob Shea is trying to save money. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) However, things start happening like, you know, Jesse's bird going ape shit and nearly blinding his dad, Clue Gallagher. Arguably the most terrifying scene of the entire series. Oh wait, no, it's the exact opposite of that. Pause for laughter. Please clap. In all seriousness, though, uh, the the scariest shit in all of two has to be like Jesse's dance sequence. Oof. Yeah. Jesse's dance sequence. For those of us, Josh, that are not horror aficionados. What is unique about this dance sequence? Okay, so it is everything about what was wrong with the 80s in one scene. Where <laughs> the character of Jesse is trying to unpack and for some reason pulls out like two or three different pairs of sunglasses in this montage where he starts dancing, he starts whipping around this this like little tiny bat and it like it's his dick. <laughs> It's, it's so cringy. It's so cringy. All improvised on the day, too. All improvised <laughs> on the spot, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, eventually, you know, after hardball negotiations with Robert England, Freddy Krueger decides to show up. 
But this time around, he's uh, putting the whole dream invasion thing on the back burner in favor of uh, possessing Jesse's body. Something that he will never attempt nor mention ever again in future installments. <laughs> but after some, you know, wacky possession shenanigans, <laughs> Jesse's best friend and local high school leather-bound gym coach gets killed. In the finale, Jesse does fuck all, but morphs into Freddy Krueger. And the thing with this movie, too, with Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is... Bob Shea was like, we need a sequel. This thing made a shit ton of money. Let's make a sequel. He's not talking to Wes Craven. They got Shoulder to direct this movie. And it it goes... Here's the thing. The second movie made money, but it wasn't, it wasn't a critical darling like the first movie. Exactly. And Freddy just absolutely starts breaking all of Wes Craven's established rules in the finale... Instead of, like, the real world being his weakness, it's the thing that he wants, and somehow his powers carry over into the real world. Powers including, but not limited to, pyrokinesis, superhuman strength and agility, invincibility, (sighs) teleportation, and the ability to pop into frame and slash random teenagers trying to get their fuck on. (laughs) (laughs) Is this the one where... Like, someone fights Freddy while Freddy's invisible, and it's just a dude. Like, it's just, like, a single guy by himself with, like, no special effects, like, struggling. Oh, that's, no, that's part four. four. <laughs> yeah. They couldn't okay. even afford to have Robert England show up that day. <laughs> Robert England costs money, kid. <laughs> so the, the voice of Bob Shea will return in throughout this podcast episode. Oh, he's... His voice is very influential over the entire series, if... If anyone's familiar with the history of the series, what Bob Shea says goes goddammit. Movies ain't cheap, kid. (laughs) But in in the end, you know, Jesse's sort of kind of girlfriend, Lisa, like steps up to the plate and makes out with Freddy really hard. And it's so underwhelming, you, you can't help but notice... Not a single person is killed in, like, a dream invasion sequence in the entire fucking film. What? It's, yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Like, anybody that gets killed in that movie, Jesse gets possessed first. Okay. It's not, like, a classic kind of, like, what you would think from a Freddy kill. You know, like, somebody has a nightmare type shit. None of that. Freddy's just possessing Jesse. And they beat him with a kiss? Is that how they defeat him? Or is that just something that happens? It's something that happens. I didn't rewatch two, but I did watch like a little recap. And yeah, she makes out with him pretty hard because Jesse's voice is coming out of Freddy. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's been a while. But the most notable thing about Freddy 2, Freddy's Revenge, is that it's known as the gayest horror film ever made. Yeah. Is it? Yes. Yeah. Is it gayer than The Lost Boys? Oh, well, yes. Mm. It has it beat by a long shot. Really? Well, Corey, listen to lines like this. Assume the possession. It's inside me. Something is trying to get inside my body, and you want to sleep with me. All right, man, what do you want me to do? I'm going to pull out my snake and shove it down this hole of yours. Shove your snake down many holes out of you? More than my share, if I say so myself. Want one more? 
Yeah, bring it on over. Wow, those juicy lines just gave me wood. What about you guys? <laughs> I mean, the, the reality of the second film was, and this was the worst part, my experience with it, was when I was a kid, the first movie and the third movie were always out at the video store. So I like when you're, you know, you're a kid is VHS. You couldn't just watch it on TV or stream it. You had to go and rent these, these tapes. So I always got saddled. I was like, ah, well, I, I guess I need to see some Freddy. So I rented that second movie like a hundred, 150 times as a kid. And then realizing that it had all this, it, it's not even, su- <laughs> it's not even subtle or subtext. It, it It's incredibly gay and that's fine. Yeah, it's fine. But it could never be made today because people would call it woke. It would be woke yeah. today, Corey. Yeah, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. They'd be like, oh, this movie and its political agenda. <laughs> it doesn't help that the actor Mark Patton screams like a girl. Yeah. <laughs> but that's Freddy's revenge. Back to you, Corey. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's awesome. Thank you guys for catching us up and for catching up the listeners. It is time to talk about this movie, however, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Now, this logo has some <laughs> some 80s-style font. You know, the Dream Warriors text. I really like that right off the bat. I gotta say, I was drawn into this movie, like, right away. Like, reading the back of the VHS tape. This is one that, it just goes to show how bad my memory was. I thought my stepdad introduced me to this movie when I was a little kid in the 90s. That's the way I remember it. I remember going to the video store and him being like, this is a pretty good horror movie, you should watch this one. And I watched it and I liked it a lot, you know, of course I was examining the cover front to back, you know, you gotta check everything in there. Is there any imagery that's scary? Ooh, that looks kinda cool. But when I talked to him recently about it, he said he never introduced this to me, so who knows what the fuck happened, you know? (laughs) He's like, I don't remember doing that. There was never a tape to begin with. Saw it by osmosis. Yeah. I mean, I I swear it was him, but either way, I saw this movie at a young age, which is really, in my opinion, the target audience for horror movies of this era, right? And this theory that I have about horror movies being for kids, it was kind of confirmed by the director of Leprechaun. On the Blu-ray commentary for Leprechaun, he said uh, he intentionally pushed to get the movie rated R by adding some swear words and some additional violence so that it would be more for kids, which is interesting. You would think that's a contradictory statement to have it be more violent, more swear words for kids. But you know what? This was a different time. R-rated movies were often for the children. Kids were watching RoboCop, goddammit. You're right. I was. I mean, Roger Ebert went after this Elm Street 3. He absolutely was like... he. And this is the same guy who made people write into Paramount for Friday the 13th because it was a travesty of good taste. So the same thing happened with Elm Street 3. He's like, you know that this is being marketed towards kids, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Roger Ebert and his revisionist history bullshit. Yeah. This dude, he gets it wrong and goes back all the time. You know, it's... <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, like, I absolutely respect Cisco and Eber. They're the reason we do what we do, right? Mm-hmm. But watching some of their older reviews for not just shit like this, but like all 80s horror, they absolutely have it wrong. They don't get the point of any of this shit. No, it's it's definitely a think about the children type of situation. <laughs> think about the children. 
<laughs> if you like this, you're a sicko. Well, we, we get to this point with Elm Street 3, and essentially what happens is Bob Shea knows that he screwed the pooch, and basically Wes Craven's like, yo, you guys owe me money, all right? Like, let's call a spade a spade. Like, you guys are making money off of this and the licensing, which was just starting to kick into full gear before this third movie comes out. And uh, him and his, his writing partner, Bruce Wagner, wrote a screenplay for Elm Street 3. And a lot of the bones for that film remain, like a lot of the rules, but it's a it's a darker, much nastier film. I mean, I think like in the first opening five minutes of that script, um, yeah, definitely if, if you're online, go get Wes Craven, Bruce Wagner, his Elm Street 3 take. Yeah, he <laughs> it has Nancy because he's bringing back his original characters that he's invested in. But those first five pages, like, Freddy Krueger first, uh, first emerges, and he's like, he calls Nancy a cunt. And I'm like, whoa, okay, like, like he is not fucking around with this sequel. He dropped the C word. Yeah, exactly. And, like, in, in the first five minutes of the movie, this movie doesn't get made, obviously, because at that time, Wes Craven is going to do Deadly Friend for Warner Brothers. And that becomes a whole fucking cacophony of terror, because... He's trying to make like a, a sweet teen science fiction movie with some horror elements. And Warner Brothers is like, no, we're just going to recut the whole picture and make it a fucking horror movie, even though it's not. Yeah. I mean, if you've never seen Deadly Friend, uh, if you've ever wanted to see a, an android smash a, an elderly woman's head with a basketball, that's your movie. Yeah, I often have wanted that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there was a period, I think I was like a senior in high school, where I watched like a shitload of like 80 slasher films, and Deadly Friend was one of them, but I, I don't remember too much about it. It's like that and like the Maniac Cop movies are kind of a blur. Yeah, I mean, Maniac Cop is like fucking high cinema compared to Deadly <laughs> Deadly Friend is just not a good movie. It's, you know, revisionist history is like, ah, oh, Wes Craven's the master of terror. You've got, the highs are high, like for every serpent in the rainbow, you know, there's another movie that just didn't work. There's a my soul to take. Exactly. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Oh, yeah. For every people under the stairs, there's a my soul to take. Yeah, it's, it's crazy too because Wes Craven is basically for the rest of his career is desperately trying to get out of the horror ghetto and there's just no way out. Like for guys like him, like Romero Carpenter. Yeah. Toby Hooper. It's, it's almost impossible at that time, at that point in time, you know, like now you've got like Nia DaCosta does Candyman and then she's doing a Marvel movie, totally different trajectory. Like you're not, you're not stuck in it unless you're an indie guy or girl really what it is though is you know at this point when we're getting to elm street three craven is like he he wants to do another elm street movie but the whole deadly friend thing doesn't allow him to do it so this is where they bring in a young frank darabont yes that frank darabont from the what he's done stand by me uh the mist the mist uh, shawshank redemption shawshank redemption uh, him and his friend Chuck Russell, who will later go on to direct the greatest movie ever made, uh, the Jim Carrey film *The Mask*, uh, <laughs> an, ach an achievement in cinema that still is a high watermark to this day. Also, a new line joint. Also, a new right, line I joint. I was going to say. Yeah. And also, a movie that canonized cer 
Surf Ninjas because in the mask there is a Surf Ninjas poster, which is really one of the few references in the world to the existence of Surf Ninjas, which I love. Look, man, uh, New Line is the house that Freddy built, but man, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mortal Kombat. Oh yeah. my God, yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, New Line Cinema, like for the 80s and 90s, we're really turning out bangers, mm-hmm. uh, like movies that like f- people feel nostalgic for nowadays. Oh yeah, even like Drop Dead Fred. They they were taking chances. They were making interesting movies. Absolutely. Well, speaking of this interesting movie, Josh, why don't you take us to the intro? We meet Kristen played by a very sleepy Patricia Arquette. Why don't you tell us about it, man? <laughs> so while the opening credits are being played out, uh, she's making a, a model of a, a spoopy house, taking spoonfuls of coffee right out of the fucking jar and downing it with, like, Diet Coke. <laughs> we see that her mom's a, a bit of a hoe. <laughs> I'm really not tired. Kristen, don't start with me. You know what your shrink said. He's full of it. I'm not going to let you get me into an argument. Not tonight. Now get to sleep. Mom, I'm still having those awful dreams. Elaine, where do you keep the bourbon? I'll be right down. Honey, I've got a guest. And you don't want to keep him waiting. That's right. I don't. (laughs) I said, where's the bourbon, bitch? (laughs) I said, where's the fucking bourbon? So she's she's trying to get trashed and have a man over and slam her. So <laughs> Kristen, however, falls asleep, and we get our first opening nightmare involving her being chased around by Freddy Krueger. Most notably about this, there's a moment where she's trying to save a little girl, grabs this little girl, only to see that it turned into, like, the shittiest goddamn prop skeleton that the the prop master could slap together. Jerry, I'm sure you know this. The actual prop that was supposed to be used in this scene is fucking great. Oh, it's horrific. Yeah. It's like, it's like an aborted fetus type of thing. Right, and it, it's very, uh, Holocaustian, yeah, shall I yes, say? Yes, yes. I don't know if that's a real word, but today it is. <laughs> Fuck it. Yeah, exactly. You don't like the uh, the little skeleton with a wig? Oh my god, dude. This this looks like something that I could slap together in five minutes. I think I did slap this together in five minutes, actually. <laughs> what was crazy, too, about this movie was like one of the one of the producers, Rachel Talley, who went on to direct Freddy's Dead. She like she saw this screenplay, the, one, the Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont script, and she was like, you guys need like $20 million to make this movie. And, and you know, Chuck's like, yeah, yeah, that's what we need. And Bob Shea was like, yeah, well, you're getting four. So, <laughs> so you fucking make that work. I'm spending all my money on this future Island of Dr. Moreau project I have in the works. Oh, God. Movies ain't cheap, kid. Movies ain't cheap. This is dark times for New Line Cinema. Did, <laughs> uh, did you hear they go, they go bankrupt eventually? <laughs> I wonder if it had anything to do with all these these bad decisions towards the end. Dungeons and Dragons? Not even that. Basically what happens is, is they get they get consumed after the turn of the century. Uh, we get into the 2000s. The last films that they got to like 
kind of mainline produced were the Lord of the Rings films. Yeah, I think that's the one they go out on top with as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <sighs> now it's to the point where, like, Warner Brothers owns New Line Cinema, and, like, they there's a fucking House Party remake coming out. Yeah, because, like, the House Party movies were huge, made a lot of money. It was, you know, like, you had Canon Films, which was always on the pulse of things with, like, ninja movies, but also, like, New Line really kind of knew what kids wanted, whether it was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Freddy or The Mask. I don't know. They kind of always had their finger on the pulse of, of the youth culture. And for that, we salute them. Absolutely. After this fantastical, crazy as fuck, kind of run-of-the-mill opening nightmare sequence, Kristen thinks she wakes up and is attacked by the sink, sees Freddy in the, the reflection of the mirror, and that's when Kristen's mom walks in, and it looks like Kristen just slashed her wrist in a suicide attempt. I can't believe you committed suicide. I cannot believe you committed suicide. How could you have done this? How could you have committed suicide? I can't help you out of this one, Jim. With all we've been through, I can't pull you out of this one. And, you know, that's really how we get that character into the Weston Hill Psychiatric Hospital. But real quick, just running through the house, you know, it's it's pretty common Freddy stuff that you're seeing there. But I'm pretty sure this was my first exposure to this franchise. So it really set the stage in a good way for me, a new viewer. And I really like the hanging bodies. Oh, yeah, it's a nice touch. Like, I think mm. that's, like, a good effect. Like, it's ominous, you know? There's creepy kids kind of hanging around. You know, this was back when a lot of movies had, like, creepy kids. Or maybe they still do. I don't really know. But, yeah, I like where they get to when she runs through the house, the end of the tunnel, all these dead bodies. And it's kind of like, this is what you're here for. This is what you're in for, Kristen. You're going to be one of them, kind of. You know, it's sending a message, and I like that. I think it's rather fitting, probably going in a little bit further, when they reveal what who the Dream Warriors actually are. You kind of get an idea for who the, those people hanging up might have been. Yeah. Other members of the X-Men. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they also know how to anamorph. Or Yeah, I saw Cyclops up there, you know. Banshee is still alive, obviously. We'll see him later. <laughs> it's crazy, though, because... You know, like, Craven introduces all this new... Like, a lot of times, that does not work in sequels where you're like, all right, we're going to introduce a shit ton of new lore and rules. But Dream Warriors, a lot of people will tell you it's their favorite in the franchise. Like, this movie is beloved by an entire generation of fans. But yeah, there, there's, like, all this stuff. Like, now we've got these characters kind of we introduce, like... That, hey, if you can do something, if you can dream it, you can be it. You can do it. Fuck it. It's a message. It's a subtle <laughs> message for the kids. Just believe in yourself. <laughs> for the kids watching. It's actually inspirational, you know? That's what it is. <laughs> but uh, we're going to get there, kind of g- going down the line here of story-wise. Weston Hills Psychiatric Facility is the setting for a lot of this movie. And it's the setting because Kristen goes there as well as nancy from the first movie and uh what we kind of see is that there's a lot of kids here you know late teens maybe young adults but young people that are 
what the doctors will say are having a shared delusion of the boogeyman, right? They're seeing something very scary, very threatening that is real to them in their dreams. Now, we know it's Freddy. We saw that earlier. And uh, we know this character, of course, going in. Everyone does. We get to see a little bit more of that. Real quick, Jerry, actually, the return of Nancy. What do you think? Are you on board with it? Yeah, man. This um, this is like fucking Legacy Sequel 101 here. Like, how do you how do you introduce new characters but have some of the OG characters and balance them where it's not just like, hey, look, it's Nancy. Hey, everybody, it's Nancy. You know, like, you can't just do it like that. You have to have some weight and gravitas. And um, it's done very well, you know. Uh, some would say even better than The Force Awakens. <laughs> I was going to say, in modern terms, we call this a soft reboot. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what is this, Ghostbusters Afterlife? Oh. Oh. More like Ghostbusters After Birth. <laughs> it was okay. I love Paul Rudd. Yeah, it was all right. It was, it was fine. fine. <laughs> it, was, it made me cry. Who gives a shit? <laughs> Enjoy your big dumb movies, you know? <laughs> like, Paul Rudd's chasing... And that movie is just so full of fucking product placement. He's chasing around these little mini Stay puffs. Like, that whole fucking movie, it was like it was written by a bunch of people who were working at a toy company. They're like, oh, yeah, we could do this. We'll sell these, yeah. Yeah. That's a throwback to the 80s itself, right? You know? And the 90s, actually, for that matter. I think Transformers was a... A toy company TV show that really was the start of that. Yeah, I mean, it, can I also just really quickly, like Larry Fishburne, excuse me, Lawrence Fishburne is in this movie, <laughs> working at Weston Hills. This was before he was knighted. Yeah, he was still Larry. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just, I got to get this off my chest because it's, I'm, I'm so sorry. I feel like fucking Kanye when he interrupted Taylor Swift, but... And, and nobody, <laughs> it's such a bad look to be Kanye in any fucking way. But um, <laughs> you're not Kanye. Um, right? uh, <laughs> so basically, okay, Lawrence Fishburne, you're like, hey, whenever he shows up in a movie, you're like, hey, shit, I did not see, you know, Larry Fishburne showing up in this movie. He literally is like, hey, what's up? I work here with the kids and there's some good kids. And then he just pieces the fuck out of this movie. Like, we never see him again. It's never... It's like, they introduce him and set him up as, like, the cool youth counselor. And then he just fucking disappears for the rest of the movie. And you know what? He never offered any Morpheus-style dream wisdom. <laughs> you know? Right? Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? This can't be. It's possible that he got pulled out of the Matrix, and that's why he's not here for the rest of the movie. If there is a guy who you need to, and, and I don't know why it... What do we call that when somebody, it's exploratory, exposition. Um, dude, like, fucking Lawrence Fishburne is your guy. Like, even if he was telling one of the kids, he's like, all right, if you have to take a shit, go to the bathroom that's down the... Like, you know, he could he could give you exposition about how to make fucking fruit punch, and it would be exciting. But uh, I, I guess at some point the check didn't clear, and he's like, yeah, I ain't coming in tomorrow, Bob. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, the actors had a lot of fun on set for this one, or so I read. Uh, but Josh, kind of continuing down, 
Kristen is now at this hospital, of course, and she is attacked again in her dreams. And, uh, you know, I think one of the most memorable visuals for the for me for this movie was the uh, the giant snake Freddy. Mm. Oh, yeah, uh, for me as well. Like, something about this sequence, like, it gets burned into my memory as a fucking kid. Him jumping out of, uh, coming out of the floorboards and, like, trying to swallow Patricia Arquette is pretty fucking, like, scarring for a kid. That's pretty fucking horrifying. You don't want to be, you don't want to be turned into Freddy shit. Right. The attack is one thing. Like, that's pretty scary itself. And it's, it's well executed, I think, in the scene. But when it shows his face, you get, actually get to see a close-up of his face moving and smirking. That image scared me when I was a kid. Yes, yes, it freaked me out. Absolutely. And freaked me out. That's what I would have said as a kid, because I was too afraid to say that I'm afraid. I would say, it's a little freaky, you know? Yeah. I would like, <laughs> that's, those are the words I would use, freaky. It's definitely little kid logic right there. Yeah. <laughs> I won't admit I'm scared. No, no, you can never admit that you're scared. What's crazy about this big worm snake thing is that they did it all flesh-colored, and they got to set, and they were about to shoot it, and they're like, it looks like a giant penis. And, like, because if you think about it, you're like, oh, wait, it's this big fleshy thing that has a face and a head on it. So Bob Shea, old Bob Shea on set that day, he's like, throw some green goop and some blood on it so it doesn't look like a big schlong. I'm like, Bob Shea just fucking money. He's, he's holding the money and the creative decisions. He's like, look, he's like, we can do a lot of shit in this movie. He goes, but if we have a giant Freddy penis eating people, that is a bridge too far. Bob Shea, <laughs> Bob Shea, got to draw the line somewhere, motherfucker. Right. Throw some goo on it. Yeah. All we have is white. <laughs> he's fired. He's, that guy is totally fired. Find me some green goo to put on this Freddy penis. Call Nickelodeon. Give me some green goo by lunch. <laughs> Jerry, we get to see Kristen's primary ability here, and it really gets Nancy deeply involved in the story, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. One would say she's actually pulled into the story. Oh. I do like the effect of her falling into the, the chair and kind of disappearing. Absolutely love it. There's a lot of little stuff like this in this movie that is only there for a moment on screen, and I absolutely love it. Like, not just the environments, which we'll talk about more when they kind of come up in the story naturally, but a lot of little things in this movie with the effects. The fucking jigsaw little trike that rolls in the room, right? That shit melts, and it's kind of like trailing blood, which is already cool, but, like, it melts, and it shows it for three seconds... But, like, what a great effect. Mm. Like, they could have just had that roll in and leave it at that, but they took the time to make it do something that is unsettling before she moves to the next location where she sees another small thing that's unsettling. She sees a roasted holiday ham, which is already kind of gross, you know, thinking about it. I mean, I love ham. Don't get me wrong. But seeing it is pretty gross. And then it's, like, disfigured, and it's like, okay, cool. They had two puppets for that. And then it fucking moves. And I'm like, okay, like, a lot of care is going into this movie, and I appreciate that. And it's an actual dead, roasted, rotten pig that some poor prop man had to puppeteer. Had to puppeteer rotten meat? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Double confirmed. <laughs> it's been verified. That's why it looks so good, because it's real. It's so visceral, so real. Yeah, man, it's like one of these things, you know, you have all the special effects artists at this time. They're like rock stars, people like Tom Savini, Rick Baker, Stan Winston. And it was basically like, yeah, Dream Quest, Dream Quest uh, images that was doing some stuff on this film. And there's all these different effects houses. And it was just like, yo, we've got a 91 minute, 93 minute movie. How many gags can we get in? And that, you know, that was how they did it. They were just like. Every, the, all the blood, sweat, and tears, and every penny, like every frame, every cent that was put into is up on that screen. Like, the, that was the whole thing. It was like, because you could do some crazy effect on this, and then you get picked up for some, you know, big studio movie, and you get paid to do nothing. You know, no, nobody's faces are melting off in some Gregory Peck film, you know? <laughs> but they should. They should. <laughs> And fuck, he was he was in the omen, so fuck me, I just threw that out the window. <laughs> a lot of good gore in that movie. Right, yeah. Takes a while to get there. The omen's pretty slow. <laughs> True that. But you know what's weird about the omen? I just, just gotta say this, like, fucking Richard Donner directs the omen, and like, Warner Brothers is like, this is the guy to direct Superman. Wait, what? <laughs> How the fuck did you get that one? No, that's what you're talking about, though, with like the versatility of directors as they were perceived at the time, right? Yep. You were just perceived as a good director, not necessarily like a genre director. Like, you do this genre. I mean, I guess maybe they were to some extent, but like, mm. I guess maybe that's when it started to shift because I was thinking, when I hear Richard Donner, I think Goonies, right? Yeah. And it's like, that's, a, that's another shift, right? You got the kids' adventure movie, but um, maybe that actually... Maybe that has always been there. I don't know. I think definitely some of them get, do get pigeonholed, like Wes Craven. I mean, he's just like the horror guy, right? And it's yeah. like, you got to wonder, did Wes Craven ever want to direct like a like a Oscar drama of some kind? Or maybe he did, and I just never heard about it. He did. He made a film called Music of the Heart. It was okay. You know, it's nothing special. It's It's a drama about a musician. <laughs> it's like the, the worst plot synopsis right there, but but uh, <laughs> not enough people get decapitated, obviously. Yeah, you know it's it's like one of those things, you know, like Wes Craven directed Swamp Thing, which you know it was one of those things where it was he just it was kind of a work for hire type of thing, like who can we get to direct this stupid movie? Wes Craven, okay, let's get him. And that was that was like eighty two was Swamp Thing, and it was another money. It was another movie where it was like, yeah, you're gonna have twenty million dollars, and like, nah, just kidding, you're gonna have like five. So if you could just uh, Wes Craven's like, not again. It happens so many times, like. It, even like when he makes Shocker for Universal, they're like, can you give us another Freddy Krueger? And he's like, well, I'm sure going to try. Oh, man, I forgot about Shocker. It's a fucking core memory unlocked just now. God damn. Yeah, dude, it was it was one of those things where it was like, we're going to give you $20 million. We're going to give you the effects. You can do whatever the fuck you want, but we want another Freddy. We want another horror icon. And it was just... 
it was what my friend Sean calls a franchise non-starter, where like you make a movie that's set up and poised, like Dr. Giggles. It's like, oh, we're going to make fucking 10 Dr. Giggles. Wait until the sequel, because that's when... And then it just never happens. It just yeah. never materializes. Shocker Man is no Freddy Krueger. How could they make a whole movie about putting one finger in the butthole and two, <laughs> <laughs> two fingers in the other one? It's a dangerous, Shocker. dangerous thing, Corey. If you do it, if you do it just the right way, you might be able to rip somebody in half. I don't know. I mean, if Freddie gave you a shocker, that would be a violent <laughs> situation. You know, he almost gave one to Nancy in that first movie in the bathtub. Was, Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my god, that was yeah. I want to see his glove come out and do the shocker pose now, and then go back down <laughs> under the water. Slowly go back down. Yeah. It it just like. There was, in order to do that sequence, it was obviously someone, it was like a fake bathtub and someone, but like, I don't care what it is. I don't care if you have a penis, a vagina, or a mix of both. I don't want anybody coming that close to my genitals with a, a fake razor glove. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Seriously. I think about that a lot. I think about that too much. I, I think I'm revealing too much to your listeners, but <laughs> I'm like, a lot could go wrong there. A lot. But uh, how do you pull off a shocker in a movie? The answer, very carefully. <laughs> do it. Jerry, I want to bring it back to you for some of the more story beats here in Dream Warriors here. We get to meet some of the kids at Weston Hills before they slowly start to get off. Now, before they become the Dream Warriors proper, maybe you can tell us about some of them and some of their character traits, and then how those character traits tie into some of the initial deaths we see. I mean, it, it's, you know, like, you've got this one chick who's a drug addict, and she's like, uh, in my dreams, I'm beautiful and bad, and she's just basically a sluttier version of herself with switchblades. So, uh... There's that. There's well, that. I was thinking more like, um, what's her name? Jennifer <laughs> and Philip. Philip, aka Master of Puppets. <laughs> I mean, Philip is Philip is one of those like, okay, like I told you in the first movie, there's like barely four people die, right? In this movie, because we're we're in this this Weston Hills Psychiatric Institute, we've got a higher body count. Because we've got more money and we want to do more special effects gags. So the, the Philip character is pretty much just introduced in order to... Look, I've met a lot of people in my life, alright? A lot. And <laughs> I don't know too many people that were like carving fucking marionettes and stuff. You know? Aw, <laughs> oh, come on. Let alone all these kids are fucking suicidal, crazy, and on drugs. Oh yeah, give them, let them carve, you know. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Give him a knife, right? <laughs> Who's running this place? Oh, I forgot. Lawrence Fishburne. Puppeteers <laughs> are weird cats, you know? Like, it wouldn't surprise me if I met a puppeteer and his origin story was in a Weston Hills-type institution. <laughs> Wait, who who's the guy who's the doctor, a.k.a. not Bill Maher, but totally fucking looks <laughs> like Bill Maher? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that would be Dr. Gordon. Okay, His name's like you. Craig Wasson. Oh, there you go. Yeah, but Bill Maher is uh, where my mind went. You know, we we meet him as well. You're you're talking about Doctor Gordon. This dude wears the same face the whole movie. You know, like he eyebrows furrowed, slight disbelief. Like, you got to be kidding me. What are we talking about here? Like, <laughs> even like when he's involved, when he's fighting like a stop motion 
skeleton man. Like, he's still wearing that face, you know? This guy's got one look. You know, I used to think I could do something for the kids, make some kind of difference. But they're slipping through my fingers, everyone. You're doing the best you can for them, Neil. My. I'm running out of answers. Patient sleepwalks out of a high security ward. A girl alone in a room dies. I can't believe this is happening. Nothing makes any sense. Yeah, Range is not his middle name. I'm glad somebody else made the Bill Maher joke because I, I I made that joke in my Dream Warriors video several years ago and I didn't want to <laughs> regurgitate the same joke. But now that we're on the same t- page as Bill Maher. Yeah, fuck it. Ostensibly, this guy is politically incorrect. <laughs> so one of the deaths that I really like a lot is the puppeteer death, right, with Philip the slicing of like the major arteries and then like pulling like I don't know like tendons and meat out of the person and using that to control him it's just like a cool look you know mm. and this guy is known for sleepwalking so he's like largely ignored when he's just like walking around you know there's a lot of like little things about this that I like I like that the marionette puppet becomes Freddy for a minute Not it doesn't stay that way for too long he's not like a little tiny Freddy the whole time but again it's just like some of the care that it takes to bring this scene to life, I think is really great. Creativity. When I was a kid and we were going through the slasher phase, my parents were like, you cannot see Friday the 13th. And I'm like, a big, dumb, fat little kid. I'm like, but why can't I see it? And they're like, like, it has no fucking artistic merit. It's exploitation. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But my parents were like, you can watch the Nightmare on Elm Street films because there is a fantasy element to these films. There is... There's creativity, there's craft, there's there's things happening here, you know? And um, I, I think my parents could appreciate that. Uh, the, the way that I got to see this film was I was still a dumb little fat kid, and I was like, how come I can't go see it? And they're like, you can't go see it, Jerry. And uh, my uncle was like the king of bootlegging, and he had, you know, he had one of those early VCRs with two, two I can't even think straight. It had, two, it had two tape players in it, so you could... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he was like, he's like, don't tell your parents. He's like, but I made you this copy of A Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And I was like, thanks, Uncle Bobby, for totally fucking corrupting me, and I'm going to watch this a thousand times. And I did. He made you the man you are today. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I found his stash of porn as well, but we'll talk about that on another episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll talk about that on The Dream Master. Yeah. Remind yeah. me to bring that up. Josh, Jennifer is killed as well. She's watching uh, old <laughs> Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett. <laughs> like, Dick Cavett and uh, Jar Jar Binks are on the tele- <laughs> on the television. Uh, the TV starts glitching and she starts hearing voices. And this this means it's a good time to check out the TV that's glitching and making voices come out of it. You know, further investigate it. And uh, arms shoot out of it. Robert England's silly little head pops out of it with antennas attached. Beautiful. And he says, which I, I think might be the one of the worst Freddy lines in all of Freddy's uh, series. I know this is iconic. That's controversial. 
but the welcome to primetime bitch line, I've never been a fan of. And then re-watching this movie, it sticks out like a sore thumb. It always has. This is it, Jennifer. Your big break in TV. Fuck the prime time, bitch. So you don't like Welcome to Primetime, bitch. I'm honestly, I'm not a big fan of Jennifer's death in general. I think this is like a, a death scene that feels more in line with like four and five. The The visual of Freddy with his head on top of the TV and the fucking TV antennas coming out is so goddamn silly. I, I just think of him like uh, from like Freddy five when he's like, the chef outfit and silly wacky shit like that. It do- and, yeah. And doesn't he say bone appetite? It does start to get silly. Yeah. Bone appetite, bitch. <laughs> this is, it's funny because the whole bitch thing becomes like his thing. And there's, what is it? It's, I forget. It's scary. Terry on Rick and Morty. Yes. It's every other word is just, come on, bitch. Oh, bitch. Right. You know, like, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. But I can imagine the day because that was an improvised line. Like, oh man, like Robert, you really nailed it with that bitch. That just was the. <laughs> you nailed that bitch, Robert. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, par- partially, like I kind of attribute this to like what eventually becomes Freddie's shtick, where he says weird, silly shit after kills or before kills. You know, like. Nice hearing from you, Carlos. Like, type shit, you know? (laughs) This is the tipping point. This is the movie that figures out, oh, wait, we can have a lot of fun with this character and do some really interesting things. But it's a slippery slope because then one movie later, you're doing Fat Boys videos, you know? (laughs) So it's like, (laughs) it's, it's, uh, you're walking the line on that one. And it is, look, Truth be told, here's my hot take. I like Dream Master more than three. Three is a better movie. It is a far superior film. It's a better made movie. It's a better written movie. It's just that four is just, it's batshit crazy. It's just a crazy movie. I I really, really do like four a lot. Uh, the, the one kind of scene that doesn't do anything for me is when Alice's friend turns into a fucking cockroach. No, I like that. That's the one moment you like I that? like. That the, the effect made by Mad Mad George. It's so like gross. Like it's, it's just like it's a whole bag of why though. I don't know, man. It's 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 visceral. Like like to me, insects are already a pretty gross prospect. Just like their existence, and then like seeing one close up. So like seeing her arms snap too while she's on the bench. Like, that's, like, a very real thing I think about when I'm weightlifting. Like, <laughs> what if my shit just gets bent back and snaps, and then, like, I have, like, little cockroach arms pop out? Is Am I thinking of the same thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the, okay. That's what we're th- talking about. Yeah. <laughs> One of the few things I remember about that movie. My little brother watched these nightmare movies and a lot of horror movies obsessively. Like, he was more like you, Josh, and he's, like, your age, actually. So... You know, I, I was exposed to this kind of stuff mostly through him, with the exception of this movie. 
And now that I think about it, I might have shown this to him, which really kicked him off. So I might be like his Uncle Bob to you, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> I will say the cockroach thing from 4 is more creative and better than the, like you were saying, Corey, where they couldn't even get Robert to show up on set. It's some guy kicking around, and they add punch sound effects in post. Yeah, that moment. That's the one I was talking about. That's the one I thought was from Freddy's Revenge, where he like fights himself. You know, it's the mirror match, Josh. A true warrior needs no eyes. And it's crazy because, like, four has doubled the budget to three. And it just becomes like, you know, it's like, how many special effects gags can we get in there? And, um, yeah, I mean, three is just obviously, dude, you got fucking Frank Darabont. This is a better written film. Even in the early screenplay that uh, Craven and Wagner wrote... He basically had come up with this adage, like all these things that are introduced in this movie, like the skeleton of it is definitely that first draft. Uh, That's why they're credited. And they also knew that getting Wes Craven's name on the poster was going to help, you know. It's just one of these things where it's like the conceit by Craven was that one-on-one, maybe, maybe you stand a chance against Freddy. But if everybody works together... Uh, teamwork and yeah there is like as someone who grew up reading the x-men uh titles there is like this yeah yeah, there is this total proto x-men type of thing happening where everybody has their own abilities and you have to understand growing up during that time period we really until 89 we don't get batman the, the tim burton michael keaton batman so dream warriors is kind of as close as we did get to something that is empowering and within the realms of fantasy. It's as close as we got to an X-Men film. I know it sounds crazy now, but movies cost money, kid. (laughs) And I want to actually get to that because a lot of the appeal to me is the unique premise of this movie, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And Josh, we get to kind of see that unfold uh, shortly after the story beat of where two of the kids are dead because... Nancy tells Gordon the truth and brings the kids together and we get to meet the actual Dream Warriors, Josh. I ask you this. Who are the Dream Warriors? (laughs) Essentially, uh, in a nutshell, they are the last of the Elm Street kids and uh, Freddy wants them. Wasted. So uh, send the word in other Warriors references. Send the word. (laughs) I want them all. I want all the warriors. I want them alive if possible, if not wasted. (laughs) The Dream Warriors consist of Gambit, Cyclops, (laughs) Jubilee. The Red Ranger. (laughs) Yeah, the Red Ranger is there too, Austin Butler. Uh, (laughs) Optimus Prime for some reason. I I need you to do something, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the... That was the worst impression of uh, what is that? Remind me, Jerry, later on in this podcast before we wrap up to ask you to do your George Lucas. It's one of the funniest things I've ever heard on a podcast. So save it up. But for the listeners, stay tuned for Jerry's George Lucas impression. Josh, getting back on track, though. Each kid has their own power. Why don't you walk us through it? Okay, so Kincaid gets super strength. Will, the guy that's ironically in a wheelchair, 
aka Wills and Wizards, becomes the Wizard Master. Patricia Arquette, aside from pulling other people into her dream, uh, can start. She can flip around. And she can. She's got good wire work. We'll say that. I want to add on to this real quick, actually, because Joey also has a superpower, and that is that he's ridiculously horny. Yeah. Mm. Yes, Joey is uh, lured away by uh, a, a Freddy Krueger. Now, originally, they were wanting the nurse to kind of morph her head into Freddy Krueger, but uh, looking at the behind-the-scenes shots, it looks like absolute shit. Uh, and according to f- people behind the scenes, she her Robert England impression is pretty piss poor. And plus, you can't really spank it to that, you know? Yeah. Like, no. This VHS tip probably got paused a lot around this area, and that would really fuck with my flow. It's funny because uh, I actually read uh, in one of these books that Bob Shea was like, Freddy with tits? That's not scary. Try again. <laughs> and I, I just felt bad for like you got this chick who's like a model she's an actress and she's like went through all this thing to make her face and it's like oh thanks dick you know you know she told all her friends and family like it's gonna be epic like it's gonna be me but I'm gonna be Freddy for a little while and you know they all tuned into the movie for that cut yeah that's always gotta be a weird thing like oh we all got to see your sister's tits in Elm Street 3 yeah right you know like if I, if I move my hand in front of Robert England's face, I could jack it to your sister. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say, like, Freddy Krueger absolutely laid a booby trap for Joey. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, good night, everybody. Please clap. <laughs> Please clap. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) It just really got me. (laughs) Things don't go really as planned. Like the kids and Nancy and the doctor, they're, they're getting together and they realize they need like a team effort and they need a plan. So that's where they uncover the idea that they can unlock powers in the dream world. You know, Nancy says, you've always had a special ability that you can do in your dreams. It's time to break them out. We're going to work together and we're going to stop Freddy in his world. He's horribly burned. He has razors on his right hand. Who is he? His name is Freddy Krueger. He was a child murderer before he died. And after he died... He became something worse. Six years ago, he killed my friends. He almost killed me. Why is he after us? Yeah, and what did we do? It's not you. Your parents, my parents, they burned him alive. And now we're paying for their sins. You are the last of the Elm Street children. Mom and Dad, I mean, that's, that's crazy. They never mentioned anything. Oh, sure. That's the sort of thing parents tell their kids. Good night, darling. Say your prayers. And, oh, by the way, your father and I torched some maniac last night. So what we do about this creep? Kristen is the key. She has a very special talent, a gift. 
I haven't been able to do that since I was a little girl. You did it the other night. That was different. You never lose a gift like that. You just forget how to use it. How about it? Will you try? All of you have this inner strength, some special power that you've had in your most wonderful dreams. Together, we can learn to use that power if we try. But things don't go right because, you know, they get discovered, they get fired. But Dr. Gordon, on his way out, he sees a nun. A very ominous nun has been hanging around. You know, he's been catching glimpses of her here and there. And she's not like a, not like a fun kind of nun. She's not like the Whoopi not Goldberg nun. Thing. She's more like the Conjuring kind of nun. <laughs> like <laughs> eerie, eerie, you know, creepily hanging around. Uh, she gives some of the story, which I think further fleshes out Freddy's story. Because as far as I know, this information hasn't been revealed in previous movies. Jerry, what's kind of Freddy's backstory, at least his origins? This is where we introduce this character who is essentially Freddy's mother. And it's funny, too, because this was not a Wes Craven thing. Even though it totally feels like a Wes Craven thing, this is a Frank Darabont thing. The backstory that's created, half by Frank Darabont, which doesn't go into the movie, and then Marvel Comics did like one or they did two issues of this like supersized special of A Nightmare on Elm Street. They did like, you know, just, they tried doing this anthology thing, and they basically fleshed out the origin uh, through that and Darabont. It's kind of like this mixed thing where like, Freddie's mother, we and they reveal this like a little bit more in four, and then in five they go full, full hog on that thing, and they're like, okay, well she was a nun, it was Christmas, she worked in this insane asylum, she got pulled in to one of these rooms, you know, because they used to, have, I mean, the way they used to treat mental patients uh, in this country all around the world was just fucking terrible. Uh, it was she gets, slightly less bad than it is now. Yeah, slightly less. <laughs> It's still fucked up, really, to be honest, is my point. But yes, go on. She gets pulled into this room with a bunch of these maniacs, and it's like he's the bastard son of of a hundred maniacs, and they basically just rape her for what feels like a a week or two, and eventually she has to give birth because uh, she lives in a red state, and there's no... (laughs) (laughs) See how it all comes around? That's uh, the worst nightmare of them all, you know? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) A fate worse than Freddy Krueger himself. (laughs) But we, introducing this character of the nun, she's giving guidance to not Bill Maher. She's kind of like appearing and being like, hey, maybe you shouldn't get high on every fucking show you do now. (laughs) And he's like, "Mm, go fuck yourself, man. So, but yeah, like... Maybe you're going in too deep with this stuff, bro. Take a step back. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. You don't need a joint every time everybody comes on, like... But I digress. You know, so we've got a larger narrative here now. Now we're starting... Wait, like, we're getting lore? And I'm a fucking nerd, and I love lore and world building, and I eat that shit up. Like, you can have a movie that is half-baked and terrible, but if you got some lore, you got some world building, and it seems remotely plausible, because a really good sequel 
basically is like an onion and it peels back another layer and says, okay, well, you think you know Freddy Krueger? Check this out. This is his mom. And we're going to set up this conceit where you can defeat Freddy if you take his bones and bring them to a place that's consecrated ground and do the whole thing. And that is funny because that goes back to the Hammer horror films. That's a Christopher Lee move. That, you know, that's that's a, a, a Peter Cushing move, you know, where you're kind of using like this old world Gothic Catholicism to vanquish this killer. You know, it's very Dracula, if that makes any sense. Oh, very much so. You know, there's a, even like Dracula style tools that they implement later on. The swing's been closed for years. What was this place? Purgatory. Fashioned by the hands of men. Twisted, lonely souls. The worst of the criminally insane. We're locked up in here like animals. This whole facility was shut down in the 40s, wasn't it? Some sort of scandal? The young girl on the staff was accidentally locked in here over the holidays. The inmates kept her hidden for days. She was raped hundreds of times. When they found her, she was barely alive. And with child. That girl was Amanda Kruger. Her child, Freddy. The bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Some say he was murdered. Though nobody was ever found. Okay, so uh, let me just say my two cents on this subject while we're while we're here. This is probably going to be another hot take. I am actually not a big fan of the Freddy bastard son of a hundred maniacs kind of origin what? thing. You don't like that he's the son of a hundred animaniacs? <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I just think it's kind of like, like, who gives a shit? Like, in my opinion, it doesn't matter how, like, Freddy Krueger, the person, was actually technically born. None of that shit. The movie should have focused on when Freddy was really born, which is the night he gets killed. You got the last of the Elm Street kids fleshed that out a little bit more and showed some flashback scenes with maybe Kincaid's parents, showed them actually doing the act. That's Freddy's origins. Who gives a shit how the details of his birth? Like, in no other, uh, like, Jason and, uh, like, Michael Myers, you're not, like, given details like this on how he was born. Not until the later sequels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where Jason is you know, some kind of a worm creature and Michael Myers is being run by some cult that revolves around an old Borders book. So I don't know. And only Paul Rudd can save him. Unless that's not canon. Exactly. I mean, look, J Josh, I'm going to call Frank Darabont after this podcast and I'm going to tell you, Josh said you're a fucking hack. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, who? And I'm like, yeah, that's what he said, you prick, and then hang up on him. The review dude said this about me? Oh my How? god, I gotta rethink my life. <laughs> Maybe I am a fraud. 
I'm going to think about this over my big pile of money, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, obviously, like, this becomes one of the most iconic story points in all of Freddy's lore, but I've just never been a big fan of it. Like, I just... I guess it's a bit of like they just want the the phrase bastard son of a hundred maniacs and that just sounds cool but I, I'm just not a fan well it, it also it's kind of one of these things like why is Michael Myers scary Michael Myers is scary because we don't know his intentions we don't know his motives when you start introducing shit like in the sequel oh well it's, it's uh, Laurie's brother and uh, you know the reason he's doing this you know like Whenever you start introducing shit like that, it's it makes the character less scary. And also, like, like even in the second movie, they try to hide Freddy a little bit more until he shows up at that fucking pool party because, you know, whatever. <laughs> but in this movie, like, Freddy's the star, you know? And it's even in the next movie, Robert Englund is the name above the title. Like, yeah. that's like the first one where they're like, yeah, you're here to see Freddy. Top fucking billing, yo. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, look, it's it's one of those things that there is some kind of truth, and I think that George Lucas himself learned this with the prequels, that the further you go back, the more convoluted things go. Like, when you start retrofitting origins and history, it can get, like, you know, midichlorians. I mean, <laughs> just, like, at any point, you know, it's it's one of those things where, like, look, I like the prequels. I have no problem with them. Compared to the shit they've been shoveling out now, the prequels are pretty good. But it's one of those deals, you know, where it's like... Someone along the lines thought it was a good idea to make it where, like Anakin built C-3PO. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't get me started on this shit. I, it just... Look, there's like... It's one of these things, man. Like, I was at the right age in 99 when I saw um, The Phantom Menace. And I, I I was like, oh, this is great. I can't wait to see it again. I think I saw it like three times in theaters. I don't know if I was in denial or if there was just nothing else to do at that point in history. But it's one of those things. Like, if you over-explain your boogeyman, the less scary he becomes. Like, is it scary that you're out in the woods in the middle of the night being chased by Slenderman? Like, that's scary. I'm scared. Where did he come from? If you fucking tell a story about how Slender... Well, Slenderman went through a really nasty divorce. <laughs> Was he the, the bastard son of 1,000 maniacs or something? That's what we need to know about Slenderman. Actually, no. He he worked at one of the last blockbusters. He lost his job. Oh, and ultimately... <laughs> the ultimate tragic story. Yeah, and that, that becomes, like, it sets up that thing, like, when certain monsters, like Frankenstein, it's fine, because it's kind of baked in that you feel sympathy or empathy for this creature, because it's, you know, he was a mistake, he's he's a, a, an abomination to God, but when you start doing these things where you're over-explaining, I like this, I think it's fucking cool, but it takes away, like, what is he? And then, look, we get all the way to Freddy's dead, and then it's like, we're like, oh, and he's got a daughter. And it's like, okay, what are we fucking doing here? Like, Yeah, that, they pulled all that, that script out of their ass. Whoa. Wait, wasn't Freddy born, like, a little rodent fucking thing? Like, I, I swear I remember a visual of, like, 
Freddy's born and he's like this little like toddler, like, no, not even a toddler. He's like a little like demon thing. And he's like scampering around the room. Am I remembering that correctly? That's Jason Goes to Hell. Okay, is this the wrong franchise? No, it's, that's the demon baby in Jason Goes to Hell where after fucking 12 movies, we, you know, or excuse me, no, we, this is the ninth movie in that franchise. After eight movies, we decide, okay, so there's a creature. He's living inside of Jason Voorhees, and that creature can body hop, and it can take on, you know, whatever. And it's just like, come on, man. Like, you've given us eight movies of pretty much the same thing, and that's all we want. We just want the same thing. But, I don't know, when, when it's kind of like grasping at straws at that point. When you try to expand the mythology beyond, like, I, I don't know, like, every movie... There's like logistics and there's like a build to the movie. There is like a almost like a mechanical thing where it's like, okay, and the movie will function as long as you stay within the parameters of that construct. But if you toy with it just a little bit or add some bullshit, it all falls apart. So you're saying we should take Jason to space? Fuck it. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on one. Let's do it. Call Drake. We're going up there. It's you know, and that's the thing. Like these Elm Street movies. Look, I'd like to believe that there was a lot of cocaine involved in these movies because there probably was. And um, you know, I don't know. They made good movies. They're interesting. As much as there are issues with this film, like I'd still take this any day over like fucking Annabelle creation. You know, like oh, absolutely. The I'm giving this movie a little tough love, and I'm I'm doing a bit of nitpicking, but this is my favorite sequel in the entire series. Yeah, and I think, you know, we get some of my favorite reasons why it's one of my favorites around this area, because, you know, we talked about the Dream Warriors. These kids each have their own abilities, and uh, it kind of gets to, like, the final showdown, you know, the last act of the movie where they eventually kind of like face off with him in their own ways at first separate and then together. But I just want to talk about some of the separate ones first where each character kind of has their confrontation with him because I think there's some really great moments in here. I like that Patricia Arquette's character, Kristen, when she's in the dream state, like she wakes up back to the beginning of the movie and we see some of those original scenes kind of replay and she's suspicious. And then Freddie shows up in a tuxedo and cuts his mom's head off. Like to me, like that's, that's like beautiful. Like I, I know you guys were talking about like the goofiness of Freddie and it starts to like get more heavy in this movie. Uh, I think it hits just the right amount for me where it's not like full on, like Freddie's dead or whatever, where it's, it's a little bit too much. I, I like this, like the surprise, especially for a kid, like the surprise scariness, but also like it can make me laugh a little bit. So I'm not like completely horrified by it. I will actually, uh, despite what I've been saying, I will defend this, this aspect. Tuxedo wearing Freddy looks fucking awesome. Dude, he cleans up nice. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Right. He's very suave. That guy. <laughs> he tries to uh to stab Kristen who does a like a, a backflip up the wall that looks like a Sub-Zero from the first Mortal Kombat movie. Yeah, like the Liu Kang move. Yeah. Yeah, to, straight up, right? And then she does this like swan dive through this window 
and absolutely fucking crashes and tumbles down the stairs like a sack of potatoes. And it's so fucking funny. <laughs> as graceful as a swan, Kristen. Well, Josh, I wanted to ask you about Taryn, because Taryn has a pretty famous one-on-one with Freddy as well, right? We get to see her in her full-on beautiful and bad form. <laughs> She's in, like, a seedy alley, right? Yeah, this is actually a really, really cool set piece. The the graffiti behind her, it says Taryn and Freddy's pretty haunting. She passes by a hobo, only for the hobo to turn into Freddy off-camera. And she tries to stand her own a little bit, as do a, a lot of the Dream Warriors that are about to get picked off. But she tries to stand her own a little bit, only for Freddy to turn his fingers into fucking needles. And that visual is so goddamn creepy. The suckers start puckering up out of her fucking, like, arms and shit. I absolutely love that. I think, I think one, it's, like, funny to me that, like, her power is knives because, you know, she then has to knife fight Freddy, which is a prospect that I would be very much uh, afraid to do. <laughs> but, you know, if only her power was a gun, she might have had yeah. an edge. <laughs> you know, she's got the knives, but damn, you know, <laughs> she could have had a gun. I mean, would you have preferred, like, a, a The Raid-style, like, knife fight where it's just, like, a bombastic, like, five-minute fight scene to do it all this karate? You know, I might love that, actually. You know, Freddy sometimes, he's, he's a pretty good martial artist, depending on the movie and the scene. As we learned in uh, Freddy vs. Jason, he's a spry guy. Oh, absolutely. Wasn't he, which Mortal Kombat was he in as a playable character? Nine. Yeah, it was nine, thank you. I just lost my Mortal Kombat, like, cool card. I'm like, oh. <laughs> no, it's all good. Uh, I actually love playing Freddy Krueger in Mortal Kombat. Uh, he's great. It's crazy, though, because, like, are, are we gonna... Can we kind of all agree that, like, this whole Taron sequence might be one of the best kills in the movie? Absolutely. Right? Like, I mean, you're looking at her arms, and they're, like, these weird, like, vaginal mouths that are opening and closing because they want whatever drugs Freddy's got in his hypodermic needle fingers. Right, and she's not really, like, afraid of him at first. She's, like, ready to throw down, like... I like that in a in a horror movie sometimes. Not not where everyone does it, but when a hero just decides to square up with the villain. Like, you know what? It's fight or flight, and I'm going to fucking fight you now. And she starts to throw down, but she gets afraid when she sees the drugs. Yep. Because she's a drug addict, and that's what actually scares her. Okay, asshole. Let's dance. <laughs> Why, uh, why should we fight? We're old friends, you and I. Remember? Let's get hard. <laughs> To your point, 
that's one of the the reasons I think this is such a strong sequel. It, like the whole aspect of all of them trying to fight back against Freddy in their own different way. They all have these own different powers. Uh, it's really cool. I, I don't think a lot of horror films were kind of dabbling with the the characters really fighting back against the villain at this time. Yeah, and it's it's a perfect. I always say like when you're writing a sequel, the secret to any good sequel is escalation, which means that it's going above and beyond what transpired in the first movie. And this just takes everything to another level. I, I gotta say too, like I. I know for a fact i've i've I, look i'm a nerd i've got some really weird videos but um there's footage the way that he kills taryn is that he puts the needles into her arms and the original special effect was that her head kind of lit up like electricity and then her eyeballs just fucking blew out but for whatever reason i guess they couldn't get the effect to work and they were running out of time but there was this whole sequence with a dummy head and it looked just like her and her eyes were supposed to explode and have smoke coming out. And I'm just like, is it the chef's kiss? Is it the cherry on top that we didn't get? Or is it just better the way that it is? Well, I think it works really well the way that it is. You know, I even like that the drugs in his fingers are like blue for some reason. Like, you know, what it's it's like some exotic Freddy Krueger drug. Like this is like beyond heroin. This is like beyond the the blue shit that Walter White makes. You know, <laughs> this is this is like supernatural high. Dude, this shit looks like straight fucking Drano. I don't want you to put Drano in my veins, Freddy. <laughs> no, her veins want it, dude. <laughs> They're begging. I'll drink anything blue. Like <laughs> like I'm a five year old. I'm like, oh it's blue raspberry? Sure. Windex, my friend. <laughs> Shoot me up with Nuke from RoboCop 2, Freddy. Oh, I wish. <laughs> There's also Will. And Will was my favorite as a kid. You know, I even used to use this quote, rewatching this movie, like it brought back an old memory. And I love watching an older movie that I grew up on and bringing back an old memory where me and my cousin Shane, we used to play video games late into the night and mom would show up and say, lights out. And I would say, whenever we get a good game going, it's lights out. So I used to actually quote that kid. And I, I liked this kid a lot. You know, he was the one that was relatable to me as a young white nerd that's kind of scrawny. And, you know, I'm big into fantasy. He's a D&D kid. And his power is what would have been my power. And it's described as being the wizard master. But what that means is that he has, like, literal D&D wizard abilities, which to me is fucking sweet. So not only can he walk, he's one of the ones that gets two powers, right? A few of them do. <laughs> if you want to count beautiful and bad, that's two right there. Right? Right. <laughs> I mean, she, she, she just has makeup, whatever. She already looks good. But the wizard master kid gets to walk. He's in a wheelchair. He faces off against Freddy in kind of like this, like, I want to say it's like an alley, but it's more like a, uh, I don't know, a tunnel that they're yeah, in, it's, right? It's, it's a, a misty tunnel. tunnel. Yeah. And Freddy sends the wheelchair of doom at this kid. The wheelchair chariot? The wheelchair chariot with, of course, it has all kinds of blades and all kinds of crazy shit on there. And, you know, he starts to, like, chip away at this kid, Will. But Will gets up, and he is the motherfucking wizard master. And he palpatines Freddy's ass. You know, he fries this motherfucker. And that was, like, very gratifying to me when I was young. I was like, yeah, you can't fuck with this. What is Freddy going to do against magic? He can't do fucking shit. 
And then the movie proceeds to piss me off thoroughly and just says, Nope, doesn't work. Nope, not gonna work on me. Sorry, you're dead. Freddy rolled a nat 20, dog. Get over it. I mean, if Freddy rolled a fucking die, and then it was a 20, and then he killed him, I would accept that. Kid. I am the wizard master. I am the wizard master. In the name of Lorik, Prince of Elves, Demon be gone. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, kid. I don't believe in fairy tales. Well, look, let me take you back to the 80s one more time, guys. I'm sorry, I have to. (laughs) My one aunt was, like, very religious, and, like, we wanted to play Dungeons & Dragons, like, desperately. Oh, I see where this is going. (laughs) So she's like, there is no way. So, like, then, like, she tells, like, my other aunt. My mom had a bunch of sisters. Some of them are still alive. Uh, <laughs> she, she basically was like, it's, it's devil worship. It's something demonic about that game. So we're like, okay, can we play the Marvel superheroes one? Now we're, we're allowed to buy and play the Marvel superheroes, Dungeons and Dragons, essentially. What she doesn't know is that it's the same company. <laughs> it's like, do you Wizard. see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. yeah, it's Wizards of the Coast. It's still the same company, but you know what? We had a lot of fun with it. I mean, it, this is like shocking confession for me that I'm so nerdy that like people are like, oh, I'm so nerdy because I, I used to love Ninja Turtles. Like, no, you're not nerdy because of that. You're just a little fucking kid. Like, I'm so nerdy that I didn't even get to play mainline D&D. I played the Marvel equivalent of D&D. So I think that takes me another level into um, never getting laid. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely not. Yeah, the uber virgin. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> respect. You know what? I, you know, I appreciate a fellow nerd, and uh, you know, I appreciated Will in this movie. Again, I was really hoping for some reason. My little brain thought like this kid can beat Freddy. He can do it. <laughs> like he's got he's got the green lightning. It's upsetting. It's it's a very deflating moment. Like when he picks him up, and even when he says to him, he's like, "Back in the saddle again." He's like, he's saying to him, "He's like, you're a fucking cripple, and you're always going to be a cripple." But before you get there, I'm going to murder you horribly. And and I think that's even just as kids when we watch this movie that you think for a second, like, you know what? This kid's got his number. He's going to beat Freddy. Like this is the kid who, if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be a wizard, right? Fuck yeah. Uh, maybe uh, in hindsight, maybe shooting like dream magic at at a dream demon wasn't the brightest idea. It just doesn't seem fair to me, Josh. It does not <laughs> seem fair that he gets to say, I don't believe in fairy tales and then kills the motherfucking kid. Does not seem fair. But you know what? The animation of the lightning. I love that old style of animation. Oh, I do that too, yeah. has been long since gone, you know, kind of died out in the 90s, but... I just think it looks great. This is very charming to me, you know, especially like a movie that had a higher budget, like Ghostbusters, like the animation of their fucking proton packs. That shit. I love it. Dude, watch 1986's Highlander. That's got tons of that hand-drawn animated stuff. 
especially in the finale. And it's just like, it's beautiful. It's like matte paintings. It's just the lost art that, you know, it's, it's, it's beautiful stuff. Yeah. And to me, it's kind of always like looked better. Like I'm not always, some CG has gotten really good, but it certainly looks better than early CG. I mean, I know George Lucas really CG the shit out of the prequels and that kind of set the stage for things to come. I mean, George, I think we have George Lucas in the room with us. Could you tell us why? George, you used so much CG in the prequels? Well, you know, um, Stephen was using it. So I said to myself, I'm like, oh, Stephen's using it. And Robert Zemeckis is using it. I said, well, you know, why can't I do it? And, um, you know, I, I said to myself, well, this is it. This is the time. It, it, you know, Steve, you got to pull the trigger. And, and you know what? I, I deserve good things, too. I deserve good things. Me, George Lucas. So I decided, well, I'm going to make Howard the Duck. And you know what? Fuck you, Steve. It didn't work. You know, I'm sorry. Not everything can be uh, Back to the Future and Gremlins. You know, some of us are uh, artists just trying to make a living. Prick. Thank you, George. I know you have to go. Thank you very much for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I know Jerry's a big fan of that one. (laughs) Buy more merch. Nerds. Josh, getting back into the movie... The, uh, the showdown, our heroes that are remaining, the ones that haven't been picked off, do meet up, and they kind of have a brawl with Freddy, and, you know, they're taken deep into the bowels of his lair, which I think looks amazing. Josh, what do you think about Freddy's lair here at the end? Just briefly before they enter his lair, there's a... Uh, we were talking about visuals that really stand out to us, and, and when they meet up, there's a floating boiler room door just that leads to nowhere. And that is such a cool visual, especially for this type of movie. They open the door up, though, and it it leads to Freddy's evil lair down in the boiler room. I like this version of the boiler room a lot, too. Like, for some reason, it feels like more confined. It's more claustrophobic than the last movie featuring Freddy we did where the boiler room seemed huge, and that was Freddy vs. Jason. You know, that is featured a few times in that movie. Similar lighting at times with, like, the red sheen, you know, and I like that it looks like it's fucking hot in there. It looks like you're in hell, right? But it just seems to work a little bit better in this movie compared to a movie like that where they tried to go a little bit too far with it. Like, this one I feel like is dirtier, right? It's an 80s movie, so it has that natural dirtiness to it. There's a lot of, like, metal debris around. I feel like that that version of it from Freddy vs. Jason is a little bit too structured, a little bit too nice of a boiler room, right? Yeah, it feels like a, a studio set, right? Exactly, right? Yeah. And, of course, they both are, but the way this one feels, feels like it has a lot of care. Oh, you feel like you could get tetanus here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I like that there's a pit that just, like, descends straight to hell that Joey's just being hung over, you know? And oh. he's been there for days. He's probably had wood the entire time because he's so fucking horny. <laughs> <laughs> Blue balls, Joey. <laughs> yeah, and, like, that's old-school optics. That's not even, like, green screen or blue screen. That's just old-school, like, optical effects, you know? Like, but you realize now, like, we talk about that door, that floating door, and some of the things that happen, like when Kristen falls back into the chair and she goes through it. The secret to Elm Street 1 and this one, it's one word, and that word is surrealism. 
there is a dreamlike quality that these films, the first one and the third one, achieve that I feel the others for some reason don't, and that's why they work so well. Well said. Yeah, that floating door, it's like, you know, step into Wonderland, you know? Like, walk, go down the rabbit hole into this place where anything is possible, and you stab Freddy with a pole, it's not going to be enough, right? Like, things in here, like, you never really know how it's going to go. For God's sake, Joey is tied with Freddy's tongues from when he was the big titty nurse. <laughs> yeah, you don't know if, like, Freddy could just, like, start pinballing your ass around the, the boiler room, you know? No. <laughs> Tilt. Everybody always says to me, you know, they're like, oh, how do we make this work? How do we bring back Freddy? Robert England doesn't, he shouldn't have to put on the makeup. Let's face it, he's he's too old. Like, it, it's, it's, we're past that now. If you were going to make Freddy Krueger work, the best way to do it, an animated series for like HBO Max. And you just, you, you could do it as an anthology, different people with different artists and different interpretations. And that way... Poor old Uncle Robert doesn't have to put on the makeup. He could just lend his voice and we're good. Yeah, I will say this, though, and you're bringing up an interesting point, is that it still feels like you need him in some aspect. And this franchise, like I said, will probably continue forever just because of like its name recognition. It's almost guaranteed to make money, especially like, you know, they did the reboot, for example. That's not the only reboot. That's going to be called the first reboot one day. Think about that. When oh, we call that movie the first Freddy reboot because the fucking naming convention of sequels and reboots gets insane. The first failure. <laughs> but, you know, I think a problem is is that we still, like, need Robert England <laughs> and that itself is a problem because they can make a lot of cool stuff here, I think, without him. And they need to find the new icon because you get someone like Michael Myers, you know, it's a mask. Anyone can wear the mask, but... This one is so closely associated with Robert England. I'm gonna, I'm gonna t- hot take here. Jackie Earl Haley was a very good Freddy Krueger. Okay, that's mm-hmm. my hot take. What I back that up with was he was a good Freddy Krueger in a bad nightmare movie. It was just a shitty movie. But he's a great actor. You know, he's he an is. Oscar caliber actor. He pulled it off. They did something darker and different. The problem was. They relied too heavily on CGI bullshit. There, I said it. Get Robert Pattinson. The man can do anything. (laughs) I love fucking Robert Pattinson. Pattinson could do it. Fuck yeah. Shia LaBeouf? No. Jared Leto? No, stop it, Josh. You're cut (laughs) off from the podcast. Stop. (laughs) Taylor Lautner? (laughs) Jesus Christ. Have you ever seen that movie Abduction with him? No. Oh, I know of it. I've seen the poster. <laughs> oh my god. You definitely it's a you got to be under the influence and you might enjoy it a little more, but it <laughs> is a shit show. It just if you've ever wanted a way like how you could squander, you've got like everybody from Alfred Molina to Sigourney Weaver in this movie. Oh. John Singleton directed it. Like Jesus Christ. You just throw the money on the fucking fire, kids. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's right. On this Nightmare on Elm Street episode, we're talking about Taylor Lautner's 2011 masterpiece, Abduction. I think that's what it is. Is it Abduction? Is it Abducted? I don't fucking know. Where's the fact checker? I've been trying to get. I've been trying to teach my cat how to be a fact checker, and she is useless. I'm sorry. 
Jerry's <laughs> producer was not available for this episode of the podcast. He heard the name Big Dumb Movie and ran. Oh, oh, and he's he's like, he, seriously, he's stalking my ass. So shout out to seducer slash producer Pete Bune because he'll be like, oh, he's like, you better shout me out. Like, yeah. seriously. <laughs> it's like I'm in a bad relationship. He's like, oh, don't you don't you go on that podcast and not be funny. I'm like, oh, shit, sorry. <laughs> You're going to hurt our brand, baby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a fucking franchise. Josh, I know we were talking about that, like, environment with the boiler room. One of the things that I also remember, and I didn't remember what movie it's from, but of course it's from this one, the one that I like the most, is, like, Freddy's chest. Freddy has all the little guados on his chest, you know? Like the, they're telling Quaid to turn on the reactor. I fucking love that, dude. At first, I thought you said Watto. And, yeah. and, and George was like, huh? What did you say? Yeah. George is still here, and he was like, oh. No, but I just love that visual. I think it's really cool. Again, it's brief, and I'm sure it was very hard to do. And it seems very complicated to make them move and to have this prosthetic on top of a man's chest that blends with the rest of his skin. But you know what? God damn it. They gave it to us just for a few seconds. It would be so easy to not do it, right? Absolutely. This becomes another very iconic kind of Freddy Krueger thing, the, the chest of souls. It shows up periodically where he just, it just shows off his fucking sweet six-pack that happens to have like six faces growing out of it. <laughs> yeah. Each pack is a face. <laughs> Sometimes he has the pizza of souls, which I think is also pretty <laughs> yeah. good. That's like if he's hungry. <laughs> Rick, you little meatball. <laughs> it's crazy too, like, especially if you go and you see how these effects were done, like if you watch the Never Sleep Again, the documentary, they have some of this great behind the scenes footage, like you know, when they did the, the chest of souls, like it was a full size prop that was like done on a sound stage, and there were all these actors and shit. And like you said, it's what is it, less than five seconds? You know, the one I remember the most, I, th- I think it may be five when they try to do the chest of souls effect, and it's it's this like giant, elaborate, like 10, 20 foot, like. <laughs> fucking thing with yeah, actors yeah. actually poking through it and everything. One thing I do want to talk to you about, Jerry, is the fight between Bones' version of Freddy, stop motion Jason the Argonauts Freddy, versus uh, Nancy's dad and Dr. Gordon. Now, I know you're an 80s guy. I want to know your opinion. Do you think that the Bones stop motion versus the two guys works well? It looks a little bit janky. It's one of those things, whenever you do stop motion, especially like you look into stuff like Nightmare Before Christmas, like it takes uh, an abundance of time, time, patience, and skill. In order to really nail it, it's, it's damn near almost impossible. But I got to tell you, about a week or two ago, maybe it was two months ago, I can't remember, I watched The Mummy Returns, and holy shit, the jank-ass CGI that's in that movie, oof. You absolutely believe The Rock is the Scorpion King at the end. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Not not the beta version, that is the Scorpion King. Yeah, I mean, seeing that type of effect really just makes me think of old video games. And I think that's what a lot of people think of when they see bad CGI. It's like, oh, yeah. this looks like an old video game. 
the terrible cutscene on a PS1, PS2 game. Exactly. I think the stop motion is is all right, but really there's like a funny moment for me with the skeleton because like this, they got to fight the skeleton and like it beats their asses. Like <laughs> Freddy's doing his like best impression of Ray Harryhausen, right? Right. Yeah. It's like exactly. It's like a Harryhausen. It's like, and that was like what around this time I think, but you know Freddy is fighting Doctor Gordon at one point. Doctor Gordon has like a shovel. He like drops it. The skeleton Freddy picks up the shovel and does like a 360 baseball bat swing and fucking clobbers this motherfucker. And it's hilarious. It's not just like a standard baseball bat swing. Like he does a full body rotation, comes back around and hits that motherfucker. And I just thought that was like so funny that like, cause you know, they, they had to like plan this stop motion a certain way and like time it. I thought you were going to say the uh, his super fucking awesome victory pose at the end of that. <laughs> That's sweet, too. It's like he's, he's like a wrestler, right? He's like for the crowd, bro. Like He's like the heel just won. It's definitely definitely a, a Mortal Kombat moment, right. you know? What's crazy, too, about this is in 84, you've got Jim Cameron's fucking The Terminator, the original, and there's a lot of stop motion because yeah, that's all the they ha- if you wanted to do it cheaply uh, look I'm going to say that stop motion was done better but it's, it's James Cameron and Stan Winston you know like it, yeah. you know they probably had a lot more time to do it and you know, it's just it is what it is I, I guess we could call it antiquated if you want to be a dick but because <laughs> uh, that's but I, I think there's a charming quality to it that's where I land as well if it didn't make me laugh, I would have rated that particular moment lower. But the fact that it got a laugh out of me is, like, awesome. It's worth it for that alone. Yep. But, Josh, back in the dream world, mirror version of Freddy has multiplied, and he's starting to take down our heroes. Joey finds his dream power. Unfortunately, Nancy never found hers, but that's fine. Everyone gets one but her, I guess. You gotta be a kid, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Joey screams shatters the mirrors, shatters the glass, and seemingly defeats Freddy, right? Mm. Absolutely. They absolutely kill him. Like, the Dream Warriors definitely win. Freddy's definitely dead. And that's definitely John Saxon over there. Right? John Saxon is... He's passed on. He tells Nancy he loves her. She's just like, ditto. Yeah, he shows up like Chan at the end of Mortal Kombat. <laughs> I, th- I thought about that too, man. <laughs> Raiden sent me to help you. <laughs> it's the it's just a classic Freddy fake out though, and he stabs Freddy. Oh my god, Freddy stabs Nancy. I mean, what a fucking sad moment. He he finally kills one of the most iconic characters up till this point. Nancy. Nancy. Jerry, it's been a long time since I've seen the Going to Pieces documentary, the documentary about slasher films. The book was better. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say there's a bit in that documentary that they kind of touch upon... This became a bit of a fad, right? Killing off the, the main character in a later sequel or something like that because you have... This, Kristen dies in four, Nancy dies in this one, the main character from Friday the 13th, one gets killed in two, 
the main character from Halloween 4 gets killed in 5. Yep. It definitely was a trope. I think it was one of those things where we talk about um, circumnavigating people's expectations. Really, with this, though, the reason that Nancy was killed was a lot of these little pieces remained, and that was a Wes Craven thing, because... Wes Craven was like, oh, you know what? I can't make this movie because I'm making Deadly Friend and I'm going to get fucked over by Warner Brothers, uh, which will later own New Line Cinema. Jesus Christ. It's, it's all just so incestuous. It's all connected. It's, it's all connected. Uh, yeah, so it, it's kind of one of these things where it was like the way that Wes Craven and Wagner wrote this movie was that this was the finale. Like... Craven was like, you know what? I did wasn't around for the second one. Kind of sucked ass, but I'm going to do this proper. Because he's like, see, because back in the old days, other than like James Bond and the Star Wars, which was a fluke, you know, as a trilogy, like you didn't have like franchises that made sequel after sequel after sequel. So every time they made one of these things, they were just assuming like, this is it. Like, come on. You know, like we got lucky twice. Is this thing really going to take off? And then it's the highest grossing one of them all. You know, like... Right. I haven't looked up the timeline, but I want to say this is probably one of the first horror franchises to do that kind of move, right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, the only other thing you have, like, is in Halloween 4, when they talk, you know, it's supposed to be, like, the little girl who Daniel Harris plays is supposed to be Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter, and ultimately, they killed off Laurie Strode in Halloween 4 off camera, of course, was because they couldn't afford to get Jamie Lee Curtis back, you know? She faked her own death, though. Isn't that, wasn't that the excuse when they did bring her back? <laughs> no, it's basically, there's so many different timelines. Like, people talk about the multiverse of madness. Fuck that. The multiverse of the Halloween franchise is like... <laughs> There's there's like uh, there's like weird things where like four, five, and six are a loose trilogy within the series. And uh, no, uh, I know, fucking, it's insane. It's like trying to follow like the Terminator timeline. Like oh. every Terminator sequel wants to just go back and be a sequel to Terminator Two. It's fucking insane. Yeah, I was gonna say like the weirdest thing is when they kill off uh, Jamie Lee Curtis off camera. Nick Stahl is just like, yeah, she died of leukemia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, God. It, it's it, oh Jesus, man. It, it's one of those deals like nowadays we're so accepting of it, like where you can do like these weird reboots or reinventions or anthology style. You can CGI a little little Edward Furlong and then kill him off. And you know what? Fucking even though he kills her, Craven still figure finds a way because he's a fucking genius. He's like, oh, I'm going to make New Nightmare and I'm going to bring Nancy back. But it's going to be Heather Langenkamp playing Nancy. Hell yeah. I will say this. The, the scene, the performance Patricia Arquette gives after Nancy's been killed and Nancy's just dead in her arms is fucking incredible. No wonder Patricia Arquette went somewhere where most of the cast went to horror conventions signing autographs. Yeah. I mean, I'll say this though, Josh, to kind of like, I don't know, slightly counter that. You know, I was watching this and I was like thinking to myself through a lot of this movie, I was like, was Patricia Arquette really a good actress ever? <laughs> no. I, she has some good moments, you know, here and there. And I really like True Romance a lot. 
and she's very charming in that. But, uh, you know, one of my friends, Pappy from Spoilers, described her as seeming to be constantly stoned. And I can kind of agree with that. She just kind of seems to live in that state. I'm sorry, she's Canadian, all right? It doesn't make you a bad person, but she's fucking Canadian. It kind of does, though. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I bet Pappy from Spoilers has never seen Prayer of the Roller Boys. Or whatever the fuck that movie's called. I don't know, it's it's really bad. Yeah. I've seen it. You know I've seen (laughs) it. I have no life. But (laughs) regardless of that fact, I don't know, she's really pretty. She's got a snaggle tooth. There's something cute about her. I like her. But is she a good actress? Eh, who knows? But, you know, you got to say this. Wes Craven ends up coming back with Scream in 96 and then makes a star out of her little brother, David. I was about to say, she's no David, but... I mean, who can be? <laughs> he did, He did, after all, win the WCW World Heavyweight uh, Championship. I have brought that up on a previous pod. Wasn't Freddy Krueger in WCW at some point? I swear there was some gimmick where he showed up. I know Chucky was. Chucky was and RoboCop, but there okay. was sadly no Freddy Krueger. I mean, <laughs> look, if look, if some of your listeners want to get a hold of something that's funny, go look online and look for Freddy Krueger, Robert England VHS promos. They had these videos that they would make for the rental industry. And it's basically like, Robert Englund as Freddy giving you a, like a breakdown. If you buy three units, we'll throw in another two. And you know, like, and he goes, yeah, "Yeah, like it's, it's better than this franchise. Him explaining to video store owners in the Midwest on why they need six copies of Elm street three. It's amazing. We're slashing Elm street three (laughs) in half. Uncle Freddy's got presents for everybody. And you thought I forgot. Deck your store with this festive wall or window poster. Lighten up <laughs> with this new 3D media light box insert. <laughs> and how about a cheery, bigger than death, war standy? <laughs> Life, death, get it? <laughs> but that's just the beginning of Freddy's Nightmare Before Christmas. I got national trade and consumer air. I got a monster hit TV series. I got the holiday spirit. Yes, Virginia, there is a Sandy Claus. <laughs> How much heavy lifting are you asking this fucking poor guy to do? Right, oh, come on. He is, yeah. yeah, you're right, man. Like so much rides on this. I hope this dude got paid a lot for these movies. I really do. I think he ends <laughs> up getting some kind of percentage off the back ends at some point. Okay, that's yeah. important, especially for a horror franchise. I mean, that goes to show, like, Robert England, he carries this fucking franchise. Even when you get into the, the lesser films like A Freddy's Dead, he's still the highlight of that fucking movie. Yep. He's easily watchable. He's, he's, a, he's a total ham, you know? I, I think he found the perfect vehicle it's his signature role. He'll always be remembered for it. And I think that, yeah, like Michael Myers, Jason Leatherface, you can put somebody in the mask because they're silent killers. But this is a 
this is a killer who tells jokes and, you know, like it's a different animal completely. It's like uh, Robert England and Doug Bradley, they become like possessive over these kind of roles because they they do have character, unlike the other horror icons around the same time. Well, Pinhead's a girl. Yeah, they, they, they got all woke. They got all woke and all of a sudden, <laughs> Pinhead's woke and Hellraiser and... A girl? There was a girl and there were there were gays. It's progressive. I, I think we should all just kill ourselves. Don't you know that anything that is not a white man is woke? I love those three ninjas movies. Dude, High Noon at Mega Mountain, that's an episode. I swear to God. If you, did you guys do that one yet? Not yet, actually. <laughs> Dude. We've been gearing for it. Sad story. We did a podcast on it and then the audio fucked up. And it's one of our two lost episodes. And uh, nothing really makes me sadder than a lost episode. I really go into a deep state of depression when that happens. You know what? The Hulkster wouldn't give up on you. And he is in, he is in High Noon at Mega Mountain. And what are you going to... I mean, honestly, I think for, you know, just for Jim Varney alone. It, it, right. It, it's got Lonnie Anderson running around in some tight leather outfit that makes... That makes no sense. But what a movie. What a movie. <laughs> Now, that was promoted at WCW Monday Nitro, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Bischoff, like, played the trailer or something. And I remember being so confused as a kid. I was like, wait a minute. Because even then, I knew that was cringe, that trailer. So I was like, is Bischoff now, is this an angle against the Hulkster? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> is he trying to sabotage his career with yeah, this trailer? Like, <laughs> You're going to make terrible films. It's like, you know, but the deal with, like, you know, um, Hogan owned you know a piece of wcw ultimately and had final say if he had a bowel movement eric bischoff would have put it on television you know (laughs) all right i want to talk about just the end of this movie real quick because the way freddy's defeated is through his bones being buried and a specific ritual Josh, as a Freddy fan, I just want to know, like, is this a satisfying ending to you? Maybe I'm I'm a weird special case, but I think when it comes to killing Freddy Krueger, the, the movies, all of them, kind of struggle. They all kind of do their own separate thing, and they, they all seem kind of weak in their own different way. It seems like kind of like a crock of shit, you know, they just mm. slap together. <laughs> Yeah, we we got we to gotta wrap this up, so let's wrap it up, you know? The one I think of the most is actually from 4, where they, they just show him his reflection, and that kills him. A man so handsome, you see him and you die. He's just <laughs> never looked in the mirror. Taking that into account, I think this is probably one of the better ones, as Catholic as fuck as it is. It is pretty, like uh, Jerry said, pretty hammer hammer horror. But I, th- I think it works for this movie, considering, yeah. you know, we're, we're getting his mom as a nun. The themes are there. It is funny to see the uh, Dr. Gordon guy, like, go to the Catholic church and, like, basically pull a Lost Boys, like, fill up <laughs> his water balloons with, like, holy water and shit. I think this must have come out like right around the same time as Lost Boys, and I was just like wondering. I was like, who got there first? You know? Uh, this came out first. It was the same year. 
Oh, it was the same year. Yeah, 87. Or was it 86? I can't remember. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you, you know what? All of your listeners at home, you have a fucking thing called Google. You know, seriously, we're doing a lot of heavy lifting here. You can go use the Google machine and figure it out. We're, we're the Robert England here. You guys are the dream warriors. <laughs> Check yeah. your facts. I just unsubscribe. I get that a lot. First off, why have we not gotten a Nightmare on Elm Street video game? That would be amazing. And why did we Bro, never... Oh. I talked about one. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Think about it. You could fucking go you you want to talk about like you could go crazy creating a campaign. It could be amazing. Especially considering the Friday the 13th video game did so well. Uh I, I think there is actual potential there. Yeah. Like you mean like a modern good game, not like the NES. Oh yeah, it's like the the more modern version of yeah. Friday the 13th. The, the one that... I had the Friday the 13th NES game as well and uh that game was fucking agitating. Yeah, because nobody knew how to play it. Right. <laughs> was... I mean, even when you figured it out, he always appeared on the other side of the map. It was basically impossible to walk there in time. I I played that game so much as a kid. I It was such a piece of shit, and I gaslit myself. That's because you... Back in the day, you didn't. You had to go buy games or rent them. I literally, people are like, oh, gaslight. I fucking gaslit myself to believe that that game was good. And it right. was not. It was not. It's intentionally fucking you over when the rocks are flying over the heads of your fucking enemies. Like, this game is trolling you, basically. There is no way in hell an eight-year-old kid is going to figure out how to get out of the woods. Once nope. you're in the fucking woods, you're fucked. Yeah, and everything is inverted, so in is out and out is in. And oh, dude. <laughs> Just getting out of a house was impossible. It's... It, Oh, man. I I really, guys, this is like a therapy session. I have so much repressed rage from both LJN, Elm Street, and <laughs> Elm Street. Elm Street was shitty, but at least it was semi-better as a side-scroller actioner, you know? like. <sighs> I remember playing this, like, fucking Flash game, Freddy game, uh, back in the day. <laughs> it was like... It looked like it was made in Microsoft fucking Paint, right? On Newgrounds? Yes! <laughs> Where you have to, like, uh, you gather all these, like, iconic f f fucking props from the Freddy series. Eventually, you grab a joint, you smoke it in front of the, the TV. Freddy pops up and he's like, hey, let's trip out, man. And it's, like, clearly audio taken from Freddy's dad. Wow, at least they included one of the most iconic scenes. Yeah, right? If you're going to adapt goddamn A Nightmare on Elm Street, you got to have that shit. All right, once again, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Questions? Yeah! What are you on? Looks like a frying pan and some eggs to me. <laughs> hey, Spence, let's trip out. It's sad, too, because, like, all those Flash games are just lost to time now. Like, I, I think a lot of them were running on software that just isn't even used anymore at this point. So... It's guys, it's in your memory hole and maybe you know it's it's like one of those things like 
sometimes the memories of things are better. You know, it's like, I remember watching this for the first time, Elm Street 3, as a kid. And I'll be honest with you, even though I revisit it, I, I recently bought it on digital because I needed it on digital because I'm crazy. <laughs> and it, it's one of those deals where it's like, yeah, I go back and I find fl flaws and faults with it. But ultimately, it's one of those things that you revisit it and it's never as good as that first time you saw it as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I've been chasing the new Nightmare Dragon my whole life, really. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that movie was amazing to me when I first saw it. Like, the concept alone blew my 10-year-old brain. In fact, I wasn't 10. I was 8, I think. <laughs> but like, that really blew my mind. Like, just this, like, meta iteration of it. And, like, I've, I've held it in such high regard my whole life. And when I rewatch it, I'm like, eh, it's not as good as I remember. Like, and it never will be. No, I, I saw it in theaters with my friend Sean, and um, I was like 14, uh, 15 at the time, and it blew my mind. It was like, oh my God, like, because nobody had done meta shit like that. And it's Craven, he's working out whatever this thing is, and then that permutation of New Nightmare births Scream. I, I will say, like, Freddy in a fucking trench coat looks awesome. Yeah. He's scarier in that movie for some weird reason. The design is just really yeah. cool. The reptilian eyes, you know. I mean, honestly, the concept of New Nightmare is is really cool. It's like, it's totally plausible where you have people believe in this character so much that it, it brings it to life. Or is it that evil just takes on a new form? You know, it, it asks a lot of big questions. Ah, yeah, man, that's a good one. <laughs> There are a couple things from that script I wish they had kept in. Like, I think at one point uh, they were supposed to mention Wes Craven, the character, had, like, cut his eyelids off and, like, was trying to stay awake to finish the script or something. Damn. Dude, that, that would have been scary. Yeah. Like, come on. You wouldn't see that coming. I like that. <laughs> Jerry, we've pretty much gone through this movie, though. Dream Warriors front to back, with the exception of the ending. You know, Nancy is now dead, the uh, leading woman from the first movie. She showed up again. She didn't make it. Dr. Gordon, after all of the events of this, has a nice sleep. I think the idea being here that, like, they can now rest, right, properly, now that Freddy is gone. They've done what they needed to do. But a little light comes on in the house, doesn't it? In the model home. And that was not in Chuck Russell or Darabont's script. <laughs> that was a Bob Shea thing. Of course it was. He pulled his dick out on the coffee table. <laughs> yeah, the movies ain't cheap, kids. <laughs> I want to see a movie where fucking Bob Shea is like Freddy. But, uh, you have to leave a door open. There's just too much money on the table, you know? But ostensibly, if I told you this was the final... Nightmare on Elm Street film, you'd be like, yeah, okay. It raised the stakes, it introduced characters who uh, formed a bond together to fight back against this boogeyman. It feels like the final movie, right? Yeah. Like, like if somebody was like, alright, we're done with the Nightmare on Elm Street and this is the last movie, I would totally be happy with it. You just look at two as the weird one. Yeah. It's, it's the mummy returns of its day. <laughs>
The Mummy Returns has not aged well. That's all I can say, folks. Watch I haven't it. seen it in so long. Honestly, don't. <laughs> don't. <laughs> just, just don't. Skip straight to the Scorpion King, followed by the Mummy oh, Three. I got it. Yeah, <laughs> it's the best shit I've ever seen in my life. If there's oh, I I'm I'm guys, I'm tapping out. I'm not even saying. <laughs> now, before we do ratings, do you guys have any final thoughts about the movie? Uh, it's a great movie. It, it really is. Like it holds up. It's entertaining. You know, definitely give it a watch. It's worthy of your time. All right. Well, on that point, let's get into ratings. Review do Josh on any rating scale you want. What are you going to give a Nightmare on Elm Street three Dream Warriors? I'm giving a Nightmare on Elm Street three colon Dream Warriors eight and a half tuxedo wearing Freddy Kruegers out of ten. Uh, it's not as strong as the original, but you know it, it, that's fine. the The biggest strength is obviously like the Dream Warriors themselves. They aren't terribly fleshed out, but what little character development is there uh, is enhanced by the performances. The the chemistry between the cast really shows on screen. The dream power aspect of it is really fun. Retrospect, I wish that had been given a little bit more screen time. But aside from like Jennifer's death and the the prime time kind of li- and the bastard son of a hundred maniacs, I I have very little like negatives to say, and those are more or less nitpicks. So eight and a half tuxedo wearing Freddy Krueger's out of ten for me. Thank you, Josh. I'm gonna go next, and I'm gonna give this close to your rating. I'm gonna give it seven and a half syringes of blue meth out of 10 and the reason being is because i think this movie does something different than the other freddy movies for the most part maybe with some exceptions and i think it succeeds at that for the most part right i really like the angle that this one takes and it introduces something and it it kind of has to quickly take it away and then it gives you a little bit of it back at the end when the dream warriors kind of come together they get a little bit of their powers but you know like the presence of freddy he's really coming after them like they don't have a lot of time to like sit together and like kind of become the x-men but they do have a little hint of that and i think maybe it's given just enough to where it works well and it's fondly remembered i think if there was a lot more of the dream warriors angle of these individuals like having powers in their dreams and they really like spent a lot of time on that and it was like an extra 20 minutes this might not work as well but as it is the movie is pretty punchy like it kind of gets you to where you need to be in a quick fashion and again this is something i said on the last podcast on freddy versus jason i think the characters from this one are more memorable than any other because you associate them with the abilities that they conjure up in their dreams. And they're very starkly memorable. You know, they did a good job of making what these people can do in their dreams unique enough from each other, for the most part, to kind of really, like, add a a point of distinction that really, like, plants itself in your mind. Like, I will never forget the wizard master guy or the beautiful and bad girl. These things are distinct. They're cool. And a part of me always wished that, like, these characters that survived, like, carried over into the sequels in a bigger way and had a stronger presence and you know just weren't offed in the way that they were and kind of like discarded and replaced for the new blood but anyway i think the sets 
the design of this movie, the props, the makeup, all of these things that make a horror movie of the 80s are really spectacular in this. Some things are dated, but I say some things will always be dated, and I think this can really rise above those things to the point where they're not like a noticeably bad CGI effect from the 2000s era, which you would see in another horror movie. Like, you know, this isn't 13 Ghosts, where you look back at it and you see things that are just fucking bad. You know, this has its place and its charm in 80s horror movies, and, you know, if there's any decade for horror movies, in my opinion... Other than the modern age, I would say it would be the 80s. And a large part of that is this movie for me. Jerry Horror, you are up next. On any rating scale you want, what are you going to give this one? It's the strongest of the sequels. Second only to New Nightmare. You could probably have people watch this movie even without Elm Street. And they would just, they'd be into it. Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one is a 10. It's... It's a perfect movie. And when I say a perfect movie, it's a perfect movie like Ghostbusters or like The Karate Kid. It all works. It's not perfect, but it, in its way, it's perfect. Do you get what I'm saying? Like Tremors. It's solid script. So it, it, it's a it's perfect, perfect movie. for what it needs to be. Yes. Uh, I'm going to give this film 8.5 giant Freddy penises out of 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good one. And also, I would like, for the record, tell the Duffer Brothers to cut Bob Shea and Wes Craven a check because uh, <laughs> that last Stranger Things season, uh, Vecna, and they, come on, they even had Robert England in it. But you yeah. see, like, you see how influential that was. Those guys are about my age. They grew up with these movies, and now it's influencing probably the biggest show in the entire world, right? Yeah, biggest American show. Think about that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, man. It's, it's, uh, I think that a Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, is probably the quintessential horror movie of the 80s. So, and if you disagree with me, well, go fuck yourself. I don't know. <laughs> Perfectly said. Thank you very much, Jerry. Thank you very much, Josh. Jerry. You have been a guest on this podcast for the first time, and I just cannot thank you enough for being here. You have offered amazing insight, wonderful commentary. Uh, For the listeners, maybe you can tell them where they can find you, what it is you do. I highly recommend Jerry, but uh, why don't you take it away? Uh, I do a show called The Offering, and I essentially take deep dives into production history, the making of these films that have become so iconic. For me, it's about chasing stories, there's all the stuff that everybody knows, but it's all the little, you know, it's it, the devil is in the details and I am always searching for the details. Uh, you can find the offering on Apple, you know, like iTunes. You can find it on, uh, what is it? Spotify, Podbean. Uh, we're on YouTube. I'm at Jerry Hara on every social media known to man. Producer slash seducer Pete, maybe sign up for Grinder. I'm heterosexual, but apparently the offering is now on Grinder, so there's that. At last. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah, Jerry does a lot of stuff, you know, obviously horror movies, but, uh, you know, Jerry talks about all things genre. And uh, if you aren't into the horror stuff, you know, he, he has a great podcast on like Bloodsport, which I thought was really interesting and an episode I really enjoyed. You know, I always love hearing about the liar Frank Dukes. 
Because <laughs> he's a liar. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, there was no way for me to make that episode. I ha- it's like, it's almost like, you know, you, you put a, a parental advisory. I was like, warning, Frank Dukes is a fucking liar. So if he breaks into your house at 3 a.m. telling you that Bloodsport was true, you know, like, you got to... I don't know. You got to take his bones and consecrate him like Freddy. He's the only way. Frank Dukes is like the new version of uh, Freddy Krueger. Easily testable. Just throw some fucking pepper spray in his face and see how he reacts. You know, let's test this theory. Is is this real? Uh, Josh, you came back as always. You know, my reliable friend. If it's great to have you as always, why don't you tell the listeners what you do and where they can find you, sir? You can follow me at Review Inc. or type Review D-O-O-D into your search bar. I make fun of movies for the most part, but I, I'm working on something right now I'm hoping to have, hopefully fucking soon, Mortal Kombat related that isn't necessarily one of the movies, but it's Mortal Kombat's big 30th anniversary and uh, we're, we're going to make fun of something they, that they did once. Can you guarantee that this will be released in 2022? <laughs> oh, oh, well, well, uh... Let's set a deadline. <laughs> well, yes, I will try to have it out before the 30th anniversary is completely done. Otherwise, the video might feel a little superfluous. Should have started this months ago, Josh. I know, right? I'm the fucking worst, but I, I'm on... It's it's like we're getting into what I'm working on. Fuck it. <laughs> Thank you again, guys. If you, the listeners, want to write in, you can email me at bigdumbmovie at gmail.com or you can talk to me on Instagram at bigdumbmoviepodcast. But the biggest ask I have for the listeners is to leave us a positive rating and written review on Apple Podcasts. That will really help boost this show so that I will be encouraged to make more if that's what you want. We also would accept a five-star review on Spotify. To do that, you do have to listen to a full episode on Spotify, and then the rating system becomes available. So play one out. Give us that five stars. People have been leaving us one fucking star on Spotify, so we need your fucking help to boost that up a little bit. I want my Spotify rating to be greater than the Spoilers Podcast Spotify rating. That's my goal. I think I'm sitting at like a 4.2 right now. That ain't good. People aren't going to listen to a 4.2 podcast. I'm a five-star man, okay? (laughs) Five stars, bitch! Gotta check your facts. (laughs) I'll check my facts next episode, I swear. I know I say that every time, but thank you guys for listening. It's been a very, very fun episode. We won't talk about Freddy for a while, so it's good to kind of close the chapter on this one. Thank you again. We love you, and good night.